We know of new methods of attack. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast this is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle to people that make it and occasionally ourselves we we are back in business i'm camille foster i do various things at freethink i am delighted to be here with you today joined as ever by michael moynihan vice news uh matt welch editor at large reason magazine gentlemen how are you we can get to you in a minute um, and we also have a, a guest today. <laughs> wow. wow! I'm just saying. I I'm going to get to the guest. He, he knows that the answer for Moynihan's case. I'm not going to talk up. about my bloody arm. It's, I'm, it's just, just like Kurt Schilling's sock, but on my white T-shirt. <laughs> Equally as phony and right wing and crazy. <laughs> well, well, let me let me introduce our guest. Um, our guest today uh, to give us. Uh, I think uh, we'll probably take a, a close look at the New York mayoral race and other things. New York, perhaps, Mr. Harry Siegel. Uh, the senior editor at the Daily Beast. Boo. Barry is back. Ba- ba- Harry, is this your second tour with us? I believe yeah. so. Yeah, I think it yeah. might be the third. It's the second or third. Nah, well, it's the other seagull with the voice. It so many confusing. seagulls. Yeah, I think. Do you know? I remember what we were trying to do yeah. the the seagull family bonanza, seagull. and it was yeah. like COVID. And, you know, I don't want to hurt yeah. your dad because yeah. you know, he's vulnerable population. Well, I think population. we decided that the racial reckoning meant that it would just be too many too many white men in one <laughs> yeah. podcast. Are and, they white, uh, though? Really? Yes. yes. All the, the, all the yes. beards. The, <laughs> yeah. I mean, out there in Dennis, you never know what's going on. It's all <laughs> sorts of stuff. Harry, you still, I don't want to give away your location, but you're out there in the middle of Brooklyn, right? I'm in the middle of Brooklyn, always. I found yeah. out. Oh, is I it true? That. I'm in the middle of Brooklyn always. 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 No, he's we on the street corners outside. selling we newspapers for a dime. <laughs> <laughs> is it true, Harry? We just want to make sure because we have a lot of Harry Siegel fans and we have a lot of Jake Siegel fans. And I found out the other day mm-hmm. that Jake Siegel, your you know craggy-voiced brother, has made Aliyah and is now uh, in the IDF or something, that he is now in Israel, right? <laughs> is that true? I can't comment on Jake's personal life. <laughs> I really can't. You know, yeah. You're going to have to get Jake on to uh, to, yeah. to is say it this, cause, it, Is it caused a seagull rift? Is there a rift? No, no, no. <laughs> but, 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 but can, I, can, I, can we at least say um, congrats to Jake? Uh, and, I, and I guess to you, Harry, aren't you a, a no uncle again? I am. I am. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> we've, got a, we've got a brand new Sal Seagull. Which yeah. uh, was my, Saul my grandfather's name, oh, yeah. my mother's father, Saul Siegel. He'll be Is a private that... detective, we're pretty sure. The detective or like novelist? <laughs> yeah, this is Both. like a bit character in Zuckerman Unbound. And Saul Siegel comes in. <laughs> that is great. God, that voice when he grows up is going to be great. Yeah, was he born be. with a beard or like? <laughs> he, he, he sounds like this pretty much already. <laughs> yeah. When he was delivered. Where? What the fuck? What are you guys doing? You're gonna smack what me? hospital am I I'm going to smack you. <laughs> Where's the milk? Yeah. Why wasn't I born in that one on Park Slope in Seventh Avenue? This place is a fucking dump. <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, welcome, Harry Siegel. Yes, yeah, yes. nice, nice much, to have you back. Much to discuss, but I, I think we have to begin with the fact that this is like this is reopening week. 
Um, it's also mm. we're on almost at the eve of Juneteenth, so obviously we'll talk about that, and we'll give Moynihan and Welch both an opportunity. Harry, I won't subject you to this, but both of them need to to confess, like Festivus, talk to me about their various crimes, how guilty they feel, mm-hmm. um, and apologize. Pretty, so it's kind of like kind of like Festivus, but except all <laughs> the of the airing of the grievances. To me. Yeah, all of the benefits accrue to me and all the guilt is heaped on them. And then we'll sacrifice one of them at the end of the podcast. It'll be fun. Oh, wow. This is like um, a Shelby fun. Steele audio book all of a sudden. <laughs> Moynihan's, Moynihan's the one already bleeding from his yeah. arm. Yeah, yeah, so it right. beats a Sydney, Sydney Sheldon audio book, which yeah. might be a little more fun, a little more sex. <laughs> um, but gentlemen, I mean, this is reopening day. Or yeah. at least it's reopening week. California and New York both reopening. Uh, with vaccination rates are, are through the roof. I believe 70%, 70% um, in New York City mm-hmm. have had at least one vaccination. All people what above the age of 12, I think it's, it is. Mm-hmm. Um, California's vaccination rates appear to be even higher. Um, this, is, uh, this is exciting stuff. This is a positive development. And I'm sure everyone everywhere is maskless. How have you gentlemen been <laughs> celebrating? What has your experience been like? I should just point out, since I've talked on this podcast before about the disparate ways in which um, Democrat-run states and Republican-run states uh, manage their their COVID affairs, and uh, pretty critically, uh, uh, from my point of view, the way the Democrats uh, tended to lock down harder, especially with schools, and had pretty bad measurable effects on the economy, um, the reopening and the, just the vaccination rates – tells kind of a flip story. All of like the 20 most vaccined uh, states are all Democrat and mm-hmm. all of the 20 that are, are not are tend to be Republican. So uh, if there is going to be any more little like last little mini wave in the late summer or early fall, it's going to be uh, in the South uh, pretty much and not in the North. So when least- we, yeah, when we were in, in Florida, it was great. Cause you know, we didn't wear a mask once there was no, just people were wearing masks. And I did encounter to your point, Matt, uh, the first person who told me that I was actually the problem being vaccinated because I was vaccine shedding. And I oh, said, well, huh? you know, here's this conspiracy theory. Um, 5G? You can vaccine, you can shed vaccines, but these are not the type of vaccines you can <laughs> shed, right? These are mRNA things. They don't actually, you don't get a little bit of COVID. It's a different thing. Right. And I just sit there like kind of smiling. And the number of people that didn't have vaccines was actually shockingly high. But of course, I was doing a story that was kind of would over-index for that sort of thing. But on the, I'm really happy that the, you know, New York thing is 70%. That said... The other thing is the I believe in science, but I don't really believe in science because I went to pick up my daughter at school today, fat, last day of school um, for her. And it was outside in, in, in Brooklyn in the, the, the schoolyard and then spills out onto the sidewalk. I was literally, and you can ask Joanna this, but you know, my ex-wife, literally the only person not wearing a mask outside on grand reopening day. And there's just all of these like rich parents like swaddled in their designer perfect masks. And I was like, you don't, you guys don't need those. Like, do you not believe you believe in science and you get the vaccine and you don't believe that it does what it says it does. You're as bad as these people in Florida. Why take your fucking mask off? Much rather. No, 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 no. I'd much rather be the, 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 jerks wearing their masks for too long than the, I'm not going to get vaccinated. fucktards. I hate both of them and I want, I don't, I don't want a choice, Harry. I want both of them eliminated. 
funny thing that happened in New York on reopening day, which uh, Andrew Cuomo announced as Andrew Cuomo does to great fanfare. So it's so two funny things. First off, he said, we're going to have fireworks tonight, which was fresh. Right. And just in a wonderful <laughs> fuck you to de Blasio. Because de Blasio's been talking for forever. When we get there, we're going to have a big parade. We're going to celebrate yeah. and so on. And then Cuomo's like, nah, surprise, I got this already. Um, <laughs> the other thing that came out, yoga outside in Central Park. <laughs> on the same day, on the same day that Cuomo, Cuomo declares victory, we followed the science and everything we did was right. And New York is redeemed. And we're New York tough. Is uh, This report came out. From this task force on nursing homes and long-term care mm-hmm. about Cuomo's nursing home mandate that is like, I'm paraphrasing here, um, this made no goddamn sense and clearly had something to do with a lot of additional older people dying in New York. Wow. And that got a little lost in the triumphal news. The cover of the Daily News today was, Harry's it's paper. over, and it's got a big mass that's crossed out. So, so, so one oh, wow. appreciate that, mm. but it also seems to me like, you know, act the end of act two of like your horror movie where everyone's wow. like, ah, it's over. It's official. And then, and then, you know, fuck knows what happens next. So to speak. Amazing for the daily news that doing that little populist, uh, post thing, it's usually a little calmer than that. Are you still writing a column for them, Harry, by the way? I am. Okay, good. I just want to make sure. I'm uh, he's not- been doing, uh, he's been doing great stuff during the, uh, mayoral uh, campaign. They just had a debate that Harry was watching so that I didn't have to. Yeah. Um, and They're Harry's been him, Harry's been the big Yang basher. He doesn't like he our, our Yang. Yang. Hang. Yeah. I don't know what this anti-Asian hate it's, it's, is. Stop the anti-Asian hate. It's too much. <laughs> well, let's let's turn let's turn our attention to this to this um, mayoral race because the, there's something I suspect Harry you can you can tell us that that there's probably some kind of useful information to be extracted from this mayoral race that maybe shed some light on the national scene or maybe not. Um, at some point in this podcast, we'll talk about other things like Putin and Biden meeting and maybe the FBI and the Justice Department snooping on journalists and people calling for expansive new domestic terror surveillance hours. But before we do that, let's talk about fucking New York and let's talk about the mayoral race um, and let's talk about the uh, the prospects of uh, of – Whoever the hell is going to win? For a while here, Harry, it looked like it was going to be Andrew Yang. That seems to not be the case. Um, I, I heard um, Governor Cuomo talking about the specific issues that are uh, dominating New Yorkers' attention when it comes to New York City. Uh, and he mentioned three things. Crime, crime, and crime. Uh, is that consistent with what you saw on the stage today? Who won the debate? What the hell is going on? Answer all of the questions right now. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to answer all those in one deep breath. So first of all, this this does not mean anything nationally. Every time there's a special election or year of mayoral elections that happen in weird years, people try to pretend this is going to mean something nationally. So 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 we'll start with Anthony Weiner, right? When when, when he uh, when he pissed away his seat in Congress and had to give it up, there was a special election, and people forget. But this was Ed Koch's last big moment before dying. He jumped in. And made that a weird referendum on Israel. And this guy was actually rich and a Republican because he was a Seinfeld producer ended up winning this. And the national press, which had nothing else to do, was like, this tells us a lot about where the country is going. It told us nothing. Right. Similarly, New York's elections are decided by like a quarter million or so Democrats like de Blasio. Last time around, got 270,000 votes. There were five candidates and ended up being mayor because Anthony Weiner returned, like got in the race. Um, kept sending people pictures of his thing 
and uh, and then sort of screwing it up for everyone else. A lot of other weird things happen, and de Blasio, who is absolutely nowhere, wins at the very end, and then crushes this Republican who since left the party, God bless him, Joe Loda, right, um, and says, I have a God, big Joe mandate. Loda. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, the city and the state have spoken, right? To the point where he, he fucking ran for president in, in, in 2020. Ha-ha. Um, so, so, so what happens doesn't tend to mean all that much. In this race, mm-hmm. what's interesting is um, at this moment of, of a, a sort of rising and resurgent left in certain ways, nationally and certainly in New York State, where Democrats retook control of the state Senate and now, you know, run everything. And, and you have like the, the, these new young progressives come up, the AOC, of course, and, and, and push out incumbents in, in Congress, uh, Jamal Bowman, others. Um, the candidates who are winning since January, it's been Yang and Eric Adams atop. And now Yang is fading in the home stretch, which is good. Um, <laughs> there's actually a fair amount that was appealing about him as a presidential candidate, but he had no business running for mayor. He doesn't know anything about New York. He never voted for a mayor here before. He's been totally checked out of our politics. He does the salesman win, thing where it's like, no, that's win, great. Win, win, win. <laughs> no, that's great because all the politicians the are from bad. Boston. They screwed it up. <laughs> the Blasio is terrible. <laughs> but Yang is fading, and it looks like Eric Adams, who's a complicated man, is going to be the next mayor, right? He's wow. a former Republican, Com- a former Farrakhanite. A cop who joined the police force to reform the police from within after he was a teenager and got beaten up by the police after him and his brother went to this prostitute's house to get the money uh, uh, they say she owed her for reasons no one has ever clarified. He's got a very consistent origin story, but that detail is missing. Right. And, and, and he's like, what's not to understand, Harry? What's a passionate had his money and he needs his money, man. That's how this works. Have, have. You ain't seen Superfly? Come on, Ray man. Kelly. Ray Kelly tried to fire Eric Adams and, and like strip his pension. Lots of cops hate Eric Adams, but he also was a cop. He went on my yeah. podcast, and I think he was trying to impress my, my recording partner, Chrissy Greer, Professor Christina Greer. Right? And yeah. he's like, "Yeah, I'm gonna carry a gun when I'm mayor, and also I'm gonna <laughs> fire my security detail. You know, yeah. just be me and my piece." Wow! Um, and, wow! And he, he is yeah, I like that. Though. I don't need no security. I don't need no security in the club. I got my own ratchet. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, we've, we've heard that before. Is he going to get the he's, fruits he's of Islam, guy. or is he divorced that now? <laughs> no, he, he's a little past that now, but he did he did make a point. This wasn't an accident. He doesn't make a lot of he's, – he's tightly wound. He doesn't say stuff exactly by mistake. He made a point of being like, people got to go back to Iowa. People got to go back to Ohio. This city's got to be for you know those of us who made it. And look, as, as a lifelong New Yorker, I can sort of understand that. However – it's it, it's a hell of a pitch from the guy who's now the front runner to be mayor. All three of the leading candidates, him or three of the four, Andrew Yang and Catherine Garcia, are all sort of stressing uh, stability, public safety. You know, uh, make sure the garbage gets collected, that stuff works. Mm-hmm. Whereas the progressives in the field have been something of a disaster. And people have said this is because, like, Diane Morales, who's the far-left candidate in the race, like, her staff is on strike against her, and she had to fire all of them, but they tried to unionize. <laughs> and Scott Stringer had a bunch of two sexual harassment claims from 20 and 30 years ago, but that really set him back, and all his progressive validators ran away. So it's like, oh, it, it's not the left. It's these particular people. However, I think if you squint, it's not these particular people. And when you're losing, you look stupid. And the candidates mm-hmm. on the left are losing – because th- there is a broader electorate and people who show up, even in a Democratic primary, for this sort of big race, 
who just want things to basically function and don't actually want to radically transform everything. And they're doing well. So, so, so Maya Wiley is now the leading candidate on the left. She got into the race very much in, in the midst of the George Floyd protests. She has ads up now, like showing the police rioting, which they absolutely did during the Floyd protests and unnecessarily. But I don't think that the, that the, 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 the big appeal after a year when gun violence, the number of victims has literally doubled, that the big appeal is like we need to stop the police. That is the threat to public safety. Yeah, and and, and yeah. so maybe this is a message nationally that, uh, that that there are limits to how far some of this stuff can go. But we'll see. And the last thing is there's ranked choice voting. The primary is in June for the first time. There's mm-hmm. eight major candidates in the race and at these debates, which is way too many. And there's not a lot of clarity. Whatever happens, you know, it's like a, a, a pinball or Pachenko or something. Like there's a little skill involved, but there's also a lot of luck. And then as with sports, you know, whether you win or lose, you do the same stuff. And it just plays totally differently. You know, if, if, if you give up two runs and your team, uh, uh, you know, wins four to two, you know, it's, it's a good, gritty performance. And if you lose two nothing, it's like you didn't quite have enough. Mm-hmm. And then we all back narrative into that, I think. There's, uh, you mentioned de Blasio. He won uh, memory serves the first time by 50 percentage points over poor Joe Loda. Joe Loda, who is like is Catherine Garcia. Catherine Garcia is the Joe Loda of the Democratic Party, although I guess now Joe is a Democratic uh, – uh, in the Democratic Party, but like he was a competent guy who ran stuff and knew how things worked, and he was perfectly fine and nice. I voted for him. I was going to get like, a, don't blame me. I voted for Joe Lotus shirt. Uh, but anyways, De Blasio wins by fifty points. He wins re-election, even though everyone hates his guts, by forty-one points. Um, despite that, and to your point about how like don't take too much from New York, is it possible to read the last th- three decades plus of New York politics, basically post Dinkins, and say the obvious? Uh, 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 aberration here, the outlier here is Bill de Blasio. Like New Yorkers, um, it's, first of all, it's kind of a cop town, kind of always has been. The cops are a way that uh, like different ethnic groups be assimilate by like getting into the police force. Um, and there's just tons of cops. Uh, but also there, there might be a, um, a kind of pragmatic take of like, okay, we know that there's going to be machine politics in this town. So let's get an executive who's not from the machine. Um, and so in that sense, de Blasio, although he wasn't a huge deal before, he was uh, internally in the machine um, because of Anthony Weiner and a bunch of just bizarre luck ended up in that position. Um, but basically, Maya Wiley was, is the closest that he has to a successor and you know, even with a little AOC push, he's still, you know, in third place at best and maybe fourth. De Blasio denies it, but he's back in Adams and he's telling his labor supporters oh. to back Adams. And he thinks Adams is somebody who people can do business with. And de Blasio's argument for his success in brief, right, is universal pre-K, ending stop and frisk, not police reform in any sense more broadly, which actually ended before he got into office, but politically had something to do with that. It was the last couple of Bloomberg years and, and redistributing some money which he actually did and without blowing everything up. So the more money was going to poorer people and to civil service workers than had been the case previously. But the thing is, we're going to have another Democratic mayor. The Republican nominee is going to be Curtis Slewa, who's running against whoever the fuck, but it doesn't really matter. Curtis <laughs> Lewa is the founder of the Guardian Angels and, and loud, loud, loud mouth, who's not, yeah. not a complete fool, but it's close. Um, and, and <laughs> he, he's, he's a fool, but he's fun. That's he, he's, he's, he's a loud fool and he uses props and, and he, yeah, he screams yeah, yeah. stuff and he knows a couple of things. And he's not always wrong. Like everyone thought he lied about John Gotti Jr. 
getting him shot. And in fact, yeah. that happened. Yeah. Not, not everything's a lie, but he, he is at best a, a corny ass stop clock. Right. And he'll get crushed. If it's Eric Adams <laughs> against Curtis Slewa, look, Eric Adams is, is pretty tightly wound in a bunch of ways. Go back to Iowa. There was a forum where all the candidates were talking to high school kids, high school kids. They were moderating the forum, right? They were like students of faith asking questions. And Eric was the only guy who stopped to think, like, I should offer some life advice to these kids, which was cool. But then his life advice was, um, y'all are lions and lions don't care what sheep think. Thank you. What? Right. <laughs> yeah. from Game of Thrones, by the way. Yeah. This is to the religious 17-year-olds. He, he just like pauses. I, I just want you to know. <laughs> and and, and I don't know Game of Thrones that well, but I'm pretty sure the guy who said it is not like a good, moral, decent guy. <laughs> so, so if it's Eric Adams or Curtis Slewa dating him, that's going to be wild. Um, Curtis Slewa also, he has, he has children with the district attorney of Queens, which is its own story. Yeah. He's got a very complicated life. He owns a lot of alimony. He got pushed off New York one. He, he could really use some, some money. Incidentally, he works at John Katsimatidis radio station. John Katsimatidis being the Christides. Uh, yeah. The, the, the very successful businessman who, who is also a sort of insane political character in New York now owns his own radio station and has his own show there. And like Curtis gets to run because John does not. When, when John ran in 2013, like the extent to which he knew literally nothing about New York was jaw dropping. Yeah. You know, I was on the New York Daily News editorial board at the time. We interviewed him. And like 10 minutes in, it's like, what are we going to talk with him about for the next 15 minutes? <laughs> you know, it's, the, it's like when you walk in on somebody whacking off in a public bathroom or something and they should be embarrassed that <laughs> you're mortified. It was that sort of feeling. <laughs> That's a great New York comparison. <laughs> People all over the country are like, wait, you, that happens? Uh, I have to say that the, the growing, uh, not growing up, but a long time ago, one of my uh, great guilty pleasures, uh, and I was weirdly never on the side of Curtis Lewa, is listening to his uh, radio show with Ron Kuby, the great, uh, late great. Did he die? Did Ron Kuby die? I can't remember. If he, Seagulls fact checking. It seems like he died. <laughs> Because he was, I, I don't, if you have to ask, he might as well send Saul Siegel on this. He's out there going, hey, give me a cigarette. <laughs> He's like, you talk about Ron Kuby. He's fucking. <laughs> yeah. I love that show. I love it. And Kuby was a great uh, uh, lefty civil rights lawyer who was the kind of white Al Sharpton who used to show up uh, all over the place. Harry, one thing that, you know, it's crime, 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 and everyone's making. Uh, comparisons back to, you know, other elections where it was crime, 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 whether it was Giuliani and John Lindsay and those times. But the one thing that, that nobody seems to be talking about, um, maybe just like on in the kind of covers of tabloids and things is what is, you know, you said about universal pre-K and more progressive Democratic Party in New York than in the past. We also have one of the biggest budget deficits ever because of the pandemic. And I talked to Scott Stringer about this. I interviewed him and he was, this was like in the middle of the pandemic. And he's like, we are screwed because, you know, we bring in all this money and it's all running away. And now we have people running away kind of permanently in trying to keep their money outside, you know, get away from that city tax. And it just seems like, you know, economically, that's kind of also a huge issue, but not one that everyone is focusing on. What are like the differences in the candidates on this and how they plan to close that very, very large budget uh, deficit? So we got a, a ton of money from the feds and the candidates were largely kicking off a lot of this in, in the hopes that would come and de Blasio too. And then it did. 
which short-term really solidifies things. So the question is, you know, do we start building up again in the seven fat years or the one fat year for the lean ones to come or not? There has not been massive economic flight of the super wealthy to date, but we also have, like, Midtown is a ghost town. Like, people are not back in their offices, and the whole rest of the New York deal is not sustainable, even if tourism comes back, public Mm -hmm. health is fine, public safety gets back under control. If all of that goes away, the, the, the economy as we've known it and how the city is built changes really substantially, and that's a big open question. And another unfortunate thing about having this election pretty early, and the Democrat functionally is the next mayor, is that they have seven months before they have to do anything. And in part for that reason, they haven't been asked very, like really, by the way, anything about uh, public health and what they would do during a pandemic. Like, you know, some Delta variant return here that even with vaccines is troubling and like overpowers the AstraZeneca vaccine, for instance, which I believe has been something of an issue in England, although I know it's really it's unvaccinated people at this point, but that can shift or some future one. Like just just in my recollection, right? We had MERS and SARS scares here. We had the whole Ebola thing, which was a damn mess. And like Cuomo's bestie, Chris Christie, because they're both like thuggish ex-prosecutors who like to control power and they share the port authority. In the middle of that, well, Trump, you know, was just a private citizen at that point, was like tweeting absolutely crazy shit and like, like you know, just shut, shut off Africa. You know, we're all going to die. <laughs> Christie takes some nurse who just returned from Africa, who's totally That's asymptomatic. Right. It's Ebola. If you're asymptomatic, you're fine. Like, you know, the, all this vaccine, uh, high, you know, public safety theater, like, like he puts her in a tent she has to live in at the airport. Mm-hmm. Like, that's crazy. And, and like, that's are we like going to have somebody? It, 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 it's nutty <laughs> stuff. We have Legionnaire's disease and like the mayor and the governor were having competing press conferences, but they just couldn't stand to be in the same room with each other. You know, Cuomo's whole thing has always been like, like he mocked George Pataki after 9-11 for holding Rudy Giuliani's coat. And he's always, I, 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 I must be the biggest dick in the room uh, in all senses. Right. Hmm. And so whoever is mayor next is going to have to navigate that. And that's going to be really complicated. There's no talk about that. No talk about public health. Everyone's talking about like a New York revival, you know, and, 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 and a summer of love and that stuff. But like we're facing really Big, serious challenges that it's not clear they have an answer to. And the last thing I'll say is de Blasio did have the universal pre-K thing, and he sort of screwed it up while implementing it very well. He really got it done, which people didn't think he would because he wanted a tax, right? And he's an ideologue, and that was his main thing. So after he wins with this big mandate after crushing Joe Luna, Cuomo's running for re-election. The whole legislature is he says you have to raise taxes. And they're like, hell no. And he doesn't get the tax. He looks like a fool. So even though he gets the thing, he doesn't get the revenue stream. He ends up in all this trouble. None of these people are running for mayor. I have anything like that for like a signature proposal. Where here's the one thing I'm going to do that's really going to transform New York or change things. In, in UPK, you know, I've got a 10-year-old and a 6-year-old now. But they, they, they both were in de Blasio's UPK. That, that was like a huge boon to working parents all around the city. Um, and, and something that, that was transformative in certain ways, it, it's not clear that any of these people are running have, have that sort of vision, which I find disappointing. My God, you just said Bill de Blasio and vision in the same sentence. This is going to take a while for me to <laughs> take a while for me to recover. Um, the crime thing, though, is is one that's playing out in a lot of places in the country. Um, I I don't think that I'm exaggerating uh, when I say that. Um, there's kind of an argument over the numbers that people are engaging in to sort of uh, 
add the crucial viscosity to their political arguments. Um, uh, uh, just a lot of people are, I think, in in my view, are in denial that that violent crime and gun related crime is just absolutely gone up, and it's been going up since at least last May. Um, uh, and uh, you know, a, a lot of people point exactly to around that time. Um, how has that played out in this campaign and the coverage? thereof um it, are there people i saw that you tweeted just be, uh before we started this call that maya wiley kind of hasn't mentioned what she would do about the crimes she talks about the cops but she doesn't talk about the crimes we may maybe need some more like uh violence interrupters which is an interesting new category of of people but like uh, uh on the kind of meta debate level uh is is the New York political class, journalists and politician alike, are they kind of all on the same page that, holy crap, there's a lot more crime and it's weird and it's bad and we got to do something? Uh, or are there still ideological holdouts who deny it? Or are there people who are absolutely overexploiting it and, and pointing to things that don't have any impact on it? The, the ideologues are all over, right? Like, so the, the New York Post, which does tons of, of quality work and tons of crap, like, they're, they're a very useful stop clock. They, they report that the squeegee men are back every two years, uh, that, like, you know, the druggies in Washington Square Park, my God. Um, and and as, as these things are not untrue. They're, they're just not really the central things. We've had a really big increase in gun violence here and nationally over the last year. And clearly this has something to do with the pandemic. Uh, it may also have to do with various uh, justice reforms and just incarcerating less people. Um and like, there's lots wrong with incarcerating everyone who might do gun crime. Um, but if you don't do that, you have more people who might do gun crimes. You, you know, and, and, and you spread that out over a large population and, and there are implications. That, that in the course of, of a conversation, I think an overdue one about over-incarceration, that some of that got lost. And of course, some of the people who, who from a political perspective, you know, you're, you're an advocate, you, uh, they're, they're nonviolent criminals, like some of those people are, are criminals, excuse me, are violent criminals. And this is just a, like a question of what they pled down to and other stuff. And you're saying we're not going to lock all those people up. And there, there, there's some impact. So I don't think we get through the pandemic, which is sort of what de Blasio and others are saying, my why we suggest, and, and like this will all just somehow take care of itself. Um, that said, what you do about this and how you maintain public safety is, is tricky like numbers are going in a disturbing direction, but they're doing so from from a pretty low point. And uh, the, the the concern is more the uh, the the direction than than, than the moment we're at. Um, the, as I said, the leading candidates are all talking about. Eric Adams says he wants to re- restore the anti crime units, which have gone from different names, but guys who just hunt for guns. There's a mm. very complicated narrative around those. Bill Braddon, the former police commissioner for Rudy Giuliani, and then Bill De Blasio is promoting his book. His thing was always, I did those and those were great. And then after Rudy fired me, they screwed them up by expanding those units too much and bringing in poorly trained dipshits who fucked things up and shot innocent people. I actually think that's about right. Uh, it's, it's very self-serving for Braddon's part, but I don't think it's wrong. Uh, Adams wants to bring that back. Maya Wiley says that's sick. Adams says, of course, we need to have Terry stops and use the tactic of stop and frisk. 
Maya Wiley says, I'm, I'm using them as sort of a shorthand for the two parts of the debate here. Andrew Yang echoes uh, a lot of what Adam says, but doesn't know nearly as much, frankly. <laughs> um, Maya Wiley then says, stop, stop and frisk is racist. Yeah, Harry, is that why, in your estimation, and it was uh, difficult to quantify these things, is that why Eric Adams uh, kind of pulled into the lead? I mean, that he's... He's got a gun on him. He's like, and he's like, he's wearing a weapon. He's talking like a cop. He's identifying as he used to be a cop. And he's not saying, let's abolish the police. He's actually talking cop language to a lot of people. Um, is that, is it that helpful to him or am I overestimating that? I, I think that's about right. Uh, he also, mm-hmm. look, he, he's been in elected politics for 20 years. He was like a gadfly politician as a police officer for, for a decade before that. He, he's the borough president of Brooklyn. He has a like a strong base of uh, of, of black support in Brooklyn and in Queens, and, and you know he's able to straddle here. He's able to say, as a cop, I want to keep things safe, and also when I was a cop, I was there to like reform the department from within, and I really did some of this, and I have this track record. So 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 that combination has has been very appealing. I, I think. He, Scott Stringer fading with those accusations, uh, starting with the, the, this woman Jane Kim, who came out with the story on a Wednesday didn't quite add up in some of its particulars by Friday, all of Stringer's progressive endorsers have left like all of them. Hmm. You know, they, they talked among themselves and they made this decision. Jamal Bowman, right. Who just endorsed AOC before he did that, he was on this, this, uh, zoom, right. With indivisible, this progressive group, like the Bronx thing. He's like, I'm really sorry I did that. Uh, but like the women told me to, and I, I had to listen to women because I've never been assaulted that way. And they said we're going. But I think Scott's a great guy, and I don't want Yang to be mayor. Now he's behind uh, uh, Wiley, um, following AOC's lead there. And Wiley's making the, this last push and, and is, like, impressive and compelling in a bunch of ways. But I think, you know, she gets asked, like, like what are we going to do about public safety right now? And she says trauma-informed care. Um, she says violence interrupters. And, and she's like, and we need to shift money out of the police department and into communities. And I'm like, those things are all cool. Does anyone think that that's going to impact gun violence in the next three months in a significant way? And, and it's just hard to see. Um, some, oh, go ahead, Harry. Sorry. And, and then just the last thing I'll say is part, part of what's made this confusing is that de Blasio, because he, he wasn't really a police reformer. He just did the stop and frisk thing. It was politically set up for him. People are already very unhappy about it. Bloomberg was here for a term too long. His commissioner, Ray Kelly, was here for a term too long, right? So he did that. And he's like, look, I fixed everything. Can we just chill now? And people weren't ready to put on the brakes at that point. Um, but it, it's confused this, this narrative all around uh, as to, you know, do, do, did we have a reform that failed? Uh, did reform go too far? And, 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 and everyone's trying to figure out where to end up. And the candidates who said, like, we have to have public safety first. Public safety is breaking down, have been winning. The weird thing is this is happening – this pandemic has killed more people than were murdered in New York since maybe 1994 at this point. I have to double check the numbers. You know, it keeps changing as the, the death count goes up. And, and, and yet, like, like a, a, a scary but manageable increase in gun crime, which, which has affected a much, much, much smaller percentage of the city and is largely involved like um, uh, emboldened like crew and gang guys often going at each other. So, so this is not like the, the, the entire city is now a menace, despite what you might read in the post. And, you know, everyone is ducking down all the time. Um, a handful of homeless guys, who, uh, street homeless guys who are like mentally ill and doing bad and scary things and shoving people onto train tracks and attacking Asians and Jews. Right. Like 
these are bad and scary things and people think about them, but, but it is not that the whole city is out of control. It's not that if there's like, you know, some, some dummies with motorbikes in Washington Square Park one night, the like uh, law and order has been, 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 been lost and people are afraid to go out in the streets or they're pulling their kids from schools. I just think you should be able to keep some perspective on this. And it's odd to me the extent to which it's dominating the race is people are looking ahead to how bad things could be as opposed to uh, where things are at. I think that's right, by the way, about the Washington Square Park and, you know, the homeless people, um, because it struck me that uh, right in the midst, in the like sort of fat part of the pandemic, when everyone is really locked down, that it just the all the people fleeing took the camouflage away from New York. Because you would notice these things a lot more when you wouldn't notice them walking through. Because I shot something in Times Square when there was nobody there. And the second we started shooting, 500 homeless people came. It's like, because they're still there. But ordinarily, I would, never would have noticed them because it was just the, pe- the streets are clotted with people. I mean, obviously, the violent cl- crime is a slightly different thing. But is anyone talking about the thing that the New York Post loves to talk about, which is bail reform? And if you can explain what happened and why that has become, you know, in the past couple of years, the thing that everyone attacks um, uh, de Blasio on. And not just de Blasio, this is also true in San Francisco, Philadelphia, it's in a lot of places. Yeah, it's Chase Budin and, and the, in San Francisco, et cetera, yeah. So, so this is a little like the uh, critical race theory stuff, in that this becomes an umbrella for, for all these different component parts that don't quite fit together. But if we're just going to talk about justice reforms generally, these new Democrats who control the state, Changed the uh, the bail laws here, which had been really bad, and also the discovery laws, which really upset DAs, and they have all sorts of worries about making gang cases and witness intimidation in the relation uh, in relation to that. Um, but uh, the, the the may or may not have something to do with the increase in gun crime here. I, I frankly have some doubts about that, and and like the post has found, like every person who got out without cash bail. Um, and you can still hold people if, uh, uh, if, if they've done if, if they're considered dangerous. But the standard for dangerous and, and the uh, charging offenses for that are way too high. So, for instance, there was a mentally disturbed street homeless guy who found a decoy Asian cop and tried to shove him on the train tracks and kill him. But because he failed to shove him onto the train tracks and what that allowed, what charges that allowed for, he had to be immediately released. Right. So there have been a handful of, of things like that. And that helps uh, create create this, this, this narrative that things are out of control and there's no way to uh, to to lock up or otherwise remove dangerous people who maybe need um, Kendra's law and compelled medication, who maybe should be in, in, in jail or prison. And Rikers is where they're getting their, their mental help. But it, it, it's not clear at that point this is the case. And we've had a national increase in gun crime, again, in the midst of a pandemic that is not tracked with the cities or states where these laws have, have, have changed recently for the most part. So I think that the, the people who are against that have gotten a bit out ahead of their skis. And again, I just want to point out that the police here, right, who, who, who always offer themselves as the only bulwark between us and, and blood on the streets and total chaos, just spent the summer rioting, beating up people really unnecessarily, allowing looting in Midtown for the first time in 40 years, and, and generally seeming overwhelmed, not in control of the situation, and, and like a, a hostile force inside the city, which makes sense because you have lots of people who live in, in Westchester and in Long Island, uh, uh, the, 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 was not there to, to watch these protests, which, which points were full of like difficult and dangerous elements and people were really disruptive and, and you know, uh, 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 FDP 
and you know throwing Molotov cocktails, but did not seem to distinguish between that and people were just like upset and like I feel over policed. Please don't shoot uh, shoot us and so on. And and we're, we're extremely rough. So all these things are happening at once. They're happening at a time when departments nationwide are I mean, a lot of trouble retaining officers. Um, the, the field feels tough. And, and I think if you squint and just take a step back, a big thing that's happening is that like police unions that got way too good a deal for way too long, too many job protections, ridiculously good pay, retire after 20 years with like great benefits and just work a second job if you want, you know, with, with health insurance taken care of and like 60K a year coming in. That suddenly there's all this pushback, um, some of which is about policing issues, but a lot of this, let's be honest, is about money, right? And if you take people with, 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 with guaranteed excellent terms of employment and start threatening that, even at the margins, and anyone who's been in a union should be able to identify with this. Like, we'll use uh, what happened to Eric Garner as an example. The number of cops I talk with who thought that the, the, the Pantaleo screwed that up, that the sergeant and the supervising officers who showed up on the scene screwed that up, that there was no need to force a physical confrontation with this fat guy who was just raving and against a wall, and that the whole thing was bad. And simultaneously, that there but for the grace of God go I, if I have to arrest someone, right? And they're struggling, and then that person dies. Uh, and and that, not no intent. It, it's not murder. And am I going to lose my? Uh, am I going to lose my, uh, my, my 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 pension? Am I going to end up in prison? With Pantaleo, of course, in part because Bloomberg, excuse me, because De Blasio dragged his feet as much as he did, with some help from Maya Wiley, by the way, who was first his attorney and then ran the Civilian Complaint Review Board, a position he put her in. Um, you know, he, he responded to this by covering up officer safety records. Pantaleo stayed on the force for five years while he blamed the feds sort of absurdly for, for his refusal to do anything. And you could feel like the power of the, the, the union, if you think of them as a tribe, that, yeah, they have uniforms and badges and authority to use force domestically, right? And it's like real Max Weber stuff about, like, that, that, that's the state's fundamental monopoly is on, on violence and power, right? Mm. This guy was collecting NYPD checks, New York City checks. I was paying his salary. For six years after this happened, that's sort of incredible, and it speaks to the the power officers have that, that isn't directly related to like the New Yorkers they're policing and 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 stopping. But but when you're stopped or have any sort of bad encounter with the police, you start you start thinking about these things, and so so that fight's been happening at the same time. If crime goes up, the bargaining position of police is stronger. When crime went down, it was stronger for a while. But once it stays down for a while, and this is baked in, and people are used to it, and like this is just good. And what are you do- what are you doing for me lately, right? And like whatever nine eleven bonanza, forgive me, of, of like public support is gone, and like police patriotism, this gets harder. And people start asking questions about this stuff, and they they should. Uh, the question is, if someone like Maya Wiley, last thing here, Bill De Blasio, the cop, the sergeant's union, doxed his daughter. She showed up at a protest. And Ed Mullins, who runs the union, who loves Trump, they endorse Trump, the PBA endorsed Trump, he's a QAnon guy, maybe, right? He puts up <laughs> her, her arrest file with her name on it, her phone number, her address, the mayor's daughter. Wow. And the mayor doesn't do a fucking thing. So when Maya Wiley is running against the police, effectively, and saying, I'm not going to take this from them, that, that's the context in which she's doing it. It is very much complicated by the increase in gun violence in particular. And, um, and, and, and some other violent crimes. But, but th- that's the argument she's making. Uh, at the same time, I think most people just want to feel safe. 
Uh, they want competent policing, and the idea that you're going to do this by defunding them, whether you use that slogan or not, it doesn't look like it's going to be a political winner, although we're going to find out soon enough. Although, because of ranked choice voting, it may be weeks before we know the winner, which, which is its own disaster. <laughs> well, that, that's actually the, the – so there are two other things that I, I'm interested in drilling down with you on a little bit. And, I mean, one of them may just be my interest in, in soapboxing. You'd mentioned the question uh, about – that was asked during the debate about desegregating schools versus improving schools. Um, and it, it sounds like the candidates had a pretty uniform response to this. The, the kind of general presentation of this is kind of a false choice. But it, it seems to me that when you have a city like New York, where underperformance in particular communities has been kind of a chronic reality for many, many, many decades now, um, and the, the kind of people who are underperforming has been kind of pretty consistent as well. Um, it seems odd to me to focus on desegregation as opposed to improving schools or even desegregations as a, as a means to improve schools when you do have like islands of success, like the KIPP Academy programs, which tend to be schools that are kind of monolithic ethnically, um, but still tend to outperform their public school counterparts reliably. Uh, by by pretty remarkable degrees, serving the same kind of communities, which suggests that maybe there's something wrong with these institutions themselves. So I'm I'm interested in kind of where conversations are about that and the degree to which there is a material difference between these candidates where school stuff is concerned. But I'm also interested in this broader conversation about ranked choice voting and what expectations are right now for how this actually impacts the race. Is it is it reliable that Adams walks away with this or does the introduction of ranked choice voting in this particular context mean that it, there's a real wild card and we're not exactly certain um, where things are going to go? It's kind of anybody's game. We're really not certain. There's not a lot of reliable polling because it's more expensive to uh, poll in a ranked choice world. Um, it's not clear how voters are actually going to fill out their ballots. There's likely to be ridiculously long lines on election day. Uh, because you have multiple voice, multiple races where you have to make five choices and think that through. And people will or won't, but it's a bunch of them will screw up the ballots. Maya Wiley screwed up her ballot and had to ask for another one. I totally sympathize. Huh. Like making sure you wind this up right and, and okay, that person's my number three choice and you're up or down a line or whatever and doing this with a whole bunch of races. And then there's judge races that aren't ranked choice. Is there state races? The Manhattan DA is it for the same reason? It's a lot and it's confusing um, to think about. So, so that's going to have some impact because the state didn't adjust their laws when the city created this new system. We can't start counting the absentee ballots until like a week after the election. So if it's close, mm. it's going to be a long time before we have full results. Eric mm. Adams was very worried about the system. His allies actually sued to try and stop it. Uh, they're concerned that a bunch of people who respectively rank him second or third might not get that far in. And uh, mm-hmm. particularly older black voters who, who have like long-time voting habits. And have always done this one way and haven't fully absorbed this new system or, or, or whatever. That seems to be his, his set of assumptions. Uh, but, but we really don't know what, what's going to happen. It seems like Adams is ahead um, and Wiley and Garcia and maybe Yang still have paths to victory. Uh, to the other question, um, look, this has been a big thing that's gotten very complicated since uh, uh, de Blasio brought in as a second commissioner, uh, chancellor, excuse me, of schools, this guy uh, Carranza. <laughs> This is a longer story, but he made his signature issue 
desegregating the elite public schools, which is something the mm-hmm. New York Times has also pushed on in its journalism. Yeah. Um, so without getting too deep into that, it didn't go well. He eventually left. Um, a new poll from Maris, the first re- big reliable pollster we've had in the cycle, happened to ask about this. And they said, which do you think would have the biggest impact on improving public education? Changing admissions policies to admit more black and Latino students to the highest performing schools, focus on improving the quality of education in low-performing schools, remove, speaking of KIPPs, the existing limit on the number of charters so more can be opened. And they're pretty remarkable answers in that they're totally across the board. 60% of white voters, black voters, Latino voters, people making over 50, under 50, men, women, people with or without college degrees said what you need to do, what, what would make the most impact is focusing on improving the quality of education of low-performing schools, with roughly 20% saying change admissions policies for the elite <laughs> public high schools and 20% saying remove the, the, uh, the, the women on charter schools. So, so that's pretty damn clear. When uh-huh. this came up in the mayor's race in a sort of screwed up, overcompressed, and I think sort of racist form, where it's like, which are you going to do? Like, end segregation um, or, or, uh, or fix the bad schools? Right. And, and plainly, New York has, has failed to do either over decades now, by, by, by the way. So, so making that a Manichaean choice, I think, is ridiculous. Again, I think Carranza gets some blame there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but, but it, it, it plainly shouldn't be. Uh, they largely rejected the choice. Um, a, a couple did not. And I, I think the candidates who answered later sort of had an advantage because it was such a weirdly asked question. You get to hear other people sort of step in it a bit. Right. Um, but I, I expect some of that fight to cool off with the, uh, with the next mayor. And it was part of mm-hmm. why Carranza ended up leaving was de Blasio wasn't willing to go to the mat for it after doing so rhetorically. Um, Eight schools right now use this test, as Matt knows, the SHSAT to decide admissions. Three of those, that's a question of state law, which goes back to the early 70s. For the other five, the mayor could change that right now. Catherine Garcia, I like in a bunch of ways, very reasonably, is like, I'm just going to make more really good elite schools with different admission standards and not mess with the ones we already have, which no one is stopping anyone from, 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 from doing. So instead of having this be this, uh, this very complicated demographic fight within the existing system, you can open this up. So you have other elite high schools that are open to the top 10% of graduates from uh, all across the city. With KIPS and with those graduates, a big part of what happens, right, is the most motivated parents are who apply, and they have the kids who are the most likely to succeed. And so once they're in those schools, you say those schools are working wonders, and it has a lot just to do with the cohorts there. It's always been my view, and I, I'm a Stuyvesant dropout, which is one of the, the three you know, schools that the state law promises has that. Like there wasn't anything special about the education there at all. Like uh, the facilities weren't weren't super great. And particularly my first year there, it was in an earlier building. Um, it was just that you had all these these people already poised to succeed, and then they did. And you're like, look at how brilliant they are. Same thing happens in District Two, right in Manhattan all the time. Like whatever pedagogy District Two does does super well because all the kids are really prepped for success. Um, are, are, are prepared, you know, to, to, to be educated. I've heard a bajillion words by the time they're three. And then whatever you throw at them, they do great. And then that mm-hmm. system gets exported to the rest of the city, and it doesn't do great. This is not actually about that pedagogy. Um, mm-hmm. and, and there's this confusion there. So, so what I'm hoping is with de Blasio leaving, with Carranza gone, with the new mayor coming in, there's a chance to reset that conversation so it's, it's a more intelligent and fruitful one. And maybe after decades of failure – we can do something about schools that are both low-performing and really segregated. 
And the, the very last thing I'll add is the reason New York schools are, are the most segregated in the country, as UCLA has now found several times, in large part, and this is interesting, uh, or, or within the school system, it's the most segregated, is because you have all of these white parents who haven't left, as they have in Los Angeles, in Philadelphia, which is a city I know pretty well, where you move outside the city limits, or you uh, send your kids to a private school, which are cheaper there, so it, it's easier to do. And these parents who have stayed in, right, have done so because there's some carve-outs and because it mm-hmm. feels uh, – they're, they're not pulling for segregation, but like, I, you know, I, I want Johnny. Johnny is gifted and talented, and Johnny's right. going to need a special thing to have that. And right. so trying trying to create a fairer system without getting those parents to opt out is very complicated because every time you mess with this, you change mm-hmm. – who the public is, right? Mm-hmm. And parents mm-hmm. are willing to buy into the whole system as long as Johnny's going to a nice place that's walking distance away and they're comfortable with, you know, and are paying into this tax base, are paying property taxes here, and are actually public school parents and supporting that system. You have to find ways to open things up without alienating them. And as we've seen in District 15 and elsewhere, that, that, that that's very tricky to pull off. And quite honestly, any change, like parents are naturally very conservative, Right. You're like, here are the rules. Here's what I want for my kid. Here's how I'm going to get there. And when those change in the middle, which they have to do, because your kid is a public school student for 13 years, K to 12, like no chancellor sticks around for 13 years. The rules are going to change in the middle of this. And that's that's very hard for parents to respond to. But we have to get somewhere better and healthier. Um, it's ridiculous to change the admissions criteria at these top schools, in my view, um, mm-hmm. w- w- which were put into place for, for somewhat sensible reasons and have shifted dramatically over the years who gets in there, right? For, from from mm-hmm, overwhelmingly mm-hmm, Jewish mm-hmm. to overwhelmingly Asian and often from lower incomes. At the same time, if you have a system w- w- where 90% of the kids w- have no chance of getting into these top schools, even if the cream of that crop is getting poached by, pub- uh, by private schools um, right. or, or otherwise sometimes removed – like something's wrong. Like that, that that's that's dishonorable and disgraceful well, and someone's got to you have to find some ways to fix it. But isn't that primarily a function of the fact that we're we're only talking about what is it, seven schools? Like seven of these specialized high schools or is there's it nine? Eight. Eight. Eight, eight, there's eight. Eight, eight of them. Uh, See, I was right it was right in between. But, but I, I think the but but the poverty rate thing like actually seems like the, the thing that's like the biggest like wow to me. Not the not the racial demographics, and as you mentioned, though, like over sixty percent Asian. But the fact that in most of these schools, more than forty percent of the students are from like impoverished households, like that's remarkable. Like, I mean, at the Harry, Harry mentioned at the specialized district, schools. Uh, yeah, Harry sorry. mentioned that District Fifteen, which is the uh, guinea pig district for changing admissions standards in the name of desegregation, which is a term I have some uh, trouble with. But we won't uh-huh. belabor that point. No, um, belabor it. Belabor it. No, I don't want to. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I, I think segregation is best used talking uh-huh. about government force and telling who can right. and can't get into a place. Precisely um, right. you, you could say that um, that postage stamp um, rules uh, do tell people who can't get into a place, which is the people who live outside the postage stamp of, or, or you know, the, the the geographical district. Which is why a lot of people who want to reform schools want to want to blow that up. And I get that, and I actually support it. In a, you know, depending on on how that looks like afterwards, as long as you know, I'm not banished uh, to walking 15, you know, schools away uh, so that I don't go to the school right across the street, which um, if our kid was going to stay in there, we would. But uh, anyways, I don't want to go down, down that rabbit hole, but just to say that 
In District 15, which is generally speaking a pretty wealthy district, it encompasses Park Slope, so it has Chris Hayes' kids, uh, and it's uh, Carroll Gardens, which is sort of nice brownstone. There's also poorer neighborhoods in Sunset Park and whatnot. It's 52%, uh, Camille, uh, district-wide, uh, are uh, come from uh, – you know, live in poverty or live in, in special circumstances. And the attempt, because it's illegal, uh, according to the Supreme Court, in the majority opinion written in 2007 by John Roberts, a very famous line, like, in order to stop government discrimination, the best thing you can do is to stop government discrimination. Mm. Um, so from that, you can't, you can't actually meet your demographics by race. Uh, so what New York uh, is starting to do and the rest of the country is starting to do in New York, beginning with my district and my kids, um, is look through socioeconomic status and life circumstance, like is English as a psycho language. Do you live in a homeless place? And uh, and uh, Harry's right. It's really hard to do this. And I just want to point out one thing about, uh, yeah. And so like when they did it in our district, immediately, uh, enrollment went down 7% the year over year after years of increase. So that showed, and this was across demographic, uh, groups too. So that showed that like the results were things that people didn't like. Um, but, uh, the poll that, uh, Harry mentioned, which I haven't read, but I've heard him characterize and he is a seagull. So he's telling the truth, um, <laughs> uh, which is that it's fascinating, right? Because it's, uh, 20% say, yeah, the thing that we need to do is to change admission st- standards at the, at the places that are prestigious. Totally um, 20% says we need more charter schools. I am in that 20%. By yeah. Way. Uh, and then 60% said, no, let's help the, 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 you know, the poor schools get better. Um, let's uh, think about that for a second. That's 20% saying, here's a solution, I think, to the problem. Another 20% say, here's a solution, I think, to a problem. And 60% say, here's a problem. I would like to see a solution. <laughs> this is a, this is so, so it's, this is a pandemic of polling. Like people never ask trade-off questions and they confuse sort of like a natural human reaction, particularly when people who are, don't obsess about this day after day, um, with like being translatable policy. Um, as uh, the, the interesting fact will be, and let's stop this conversation soon and pivot to somewhere else. Um, but uh, uh, as I had written recently, de Blasio, unlike the mayors of Chicago and in Los Angeles, or at least the people who run the school systems there, he has said that in September, the actual biggest issue of school, which is not uh, necessarily desegregation, even though that's the biggest issue that people who work for schools think is the biggest issue all the time. I mean, there's an equity party, uh, I think, at my daughter's uh, middle school, which is the uh, the nice white parents middle school, by the way. Um, that was uh, equity symposium on Friday um, that I missed. Um, it's just constant. <laughs> like, it's, it, it is a constant drumbeat. But the biggest uh, issue is, like, are the schools going to be fucking open? Right? My daughter still goes to, the oldest one goes twice a week, and half the classes that she attends there's no teacher so they just go in the yard and play with their phones uh for a variety of reasons that you know a quarter of the teachers this year have said i can't go to to work um so that makes it hard to staff (laughs) so um uh, but what de Blasio has said in response to this is that there's going to be no more remote learning in the city of New York. That's a huge deal. That's 960,000 or 900,000 um, students who are not going to have the remote option. The exception is going to be charter schools. Um, and so we're going to get into this in- wonderful flip uh, because 
um, in stupid New York politics, not that all New York politics is stupid, but in the stupid part of New York politics, uh, the racial debate around charter schools is that charter schools are like a tool of racist people to undermine public education. Mm -hmm. And the argument around charter schools is that this is actually a way – um, that black and brown kids or poor kids or whatever uh, can get good schooling and those communities like it the most. Well, um, when you have a one-size-fits-all policy about schools, which de Blasio is doing, and I kind of understand where he's coming from, because if you don't eliminate the remote possibility, then your whole school system is going to be messed up. Um, yet, uh, so the charters are going to be the only ones doing it. And yet, who has been blocking the growth of charters? It's de Blasio. And it's people and it's the uh, progressive Democrats who want there to be an artificial cap on their number. So all that's going to be fascinating to watch. The general prediction, which is going to be in true in every big city in my prediction, uh, is that the number, the the, the uptake of a percentage of families who are going to choose public school is just going to bleed. And that's going to have plummeted in New York. It's plummeted in the last couple of years. So we're under a million for the first time in a long time now. It went from a million to 960,000. And now I think it's 890,000. And that number doesn't include my uh, kindergartner who's not going to public school next year. Um, So like, it's going to be bad. Uh, uh, It's going to have huge uh, effects on, on schooling going forward. And, um, definitely something to watch, but let's not talk about that anymore. Well, I want to talk about 1918 for one second. So, yeah, so <laughs> I'm going to get to 1918. Look, the Blasio actually got New York schools open in this weird, screwy way where there were kids who were remote and kids who were half remote and uh, kids who were there all the time. And the rules kept changing over the years and high schools weren't open and then they were. But he, he pushed to do that. With, 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 with the unions who've been problematical here and nationwide in this context, uh, you know, and are, again, like with the police, like looking out for, for their members, which I don't really fault them for. But he, he did actually get that done last year. And I think he's right in this coming year to say we can't have the, this split system anymore, particularly because the union had negotiated so that the same teacher could not teach remote kids and in-person kids at the same time or on the same day. So a bunch of principals and their teachers sort of agreed to just do that anyways, and that was cool at some schools, but then at others they weren't. And it meant that the math of how many teachers you needed as kids were remote or then were going then hybrid or then wanted to be there full time was just totally unmanageable. And the, the, the numbers kept changing. But he got the system open when L.A. and all these other places did it. In 1918, in the midst of uh, uh, the Spanish flu, so-called, right – um, which, by the way, we're catching up rapidly on the casualty numbers from. That was 675,000. We're at 600,000 now from the coronavirus. L.A. closed all their schools. They did correspondence classes, you know, pre-internet and all. Uh, San Francisco, I believe, same. And New York, where the uh, the, the Department of Health was, was led by a, a – what do you call a, a, a doctor who just believes in natural stuff? Uh, not a pathologist, a uh, homeopath. Yeah was led by the, 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 this political operator homeopath. Um, and, you know, this is in this great WASP era of, like, urban improvements that all this wonderful stuff and bad stuff comes out of. He's like, all these kids live in slums who are in the public schools, and they've been expanding rapidly, and these school buildings are new and beautiful and really well-ventilated. Same buildings our kids are in now, not so well-ventilated 100 years later of, you know, of, of getting worn down. Um, but we have to keep them there. And the schools stayed open. Uh, kids were actually pretty healthy. They, they were able to be monitored, and this ended up randomly working well. That guy, um, Royal Copeland, then ended up becoming a senator 
where he crusaded about the bad air, uh, the bad air, and there was no air conditioning, and how hot and unsanitary it was, and like all the senators that killed, and actually is the guy who got air conditioning in the U.S. Senate. So, so God bless him. Wow, <laughs> that's great. That's my trivia for you. We need we need a lot of that. Well, Harry, I, I I appreciate you joining us to to talk a bit of, of New York politics, and and I do think there are some broader implications for for national politics and and all of that uh, stuff that we just discussed, and some general trends that are very interesting. It'll be it'll be interesting to see how things go with respect to the recovery. I think that the the economic stuff in particular. I mean, it, we just we just don't know like what the fallout from COVID is going to look like yet. I mean, the commercial real estate situation in New York just looks very very bleak to me. Uh, of all of the vulnerabilities there, I mean that that seems pretty severe. So, so we'll see how things play out. And next week we'll have the uh, the election, and we won't have results for some time after that. But we at least know that it doesn't really matter what happens in November. So. Hey, just with gentrification, you can talk about gentrification for decades, and the rent is too damn high. And before you know it, it's like, why, why, why is no one living here? Why are these buildings falling down? Why are they getting arson hmm. fire? Like that, that can happen real quick. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. Yeah, glad I left. Uh, well, I'm gonna go, I'll say one thing on the way out. I want to know. This is a very important question. Uh oh. How Fred Siegel, your father, author. Former uh, Yipsel activist, I think. Was he a Yipsel guy, uh, Harry? I don't know. You don't know? Don't he, know. Was, he was a lefty back in the day, though, wasn't he? He was definitely a lefty. I just want to be careful about... <laughs> about, about yeah, about these <laughs> denominations. It gets very sensitive with these people. But your dad's doing okay? And his, his book, uh, which uh, was... We, is, it, is it in paperback now or something? I thought there was some it new is. release of it. It is. It's out. It's in paperback. His book's doing great. He's doing great. He's become very uh, cranky um, in his older age. Become. (laughs) Crankier. Yeah. What's the name of the book? Saul Siegel. Saul Siegel is like, yeah. What's the name of your dad's book again? He's going to get it. What a son. He literally got up from his chair. A a good son would know it. Yeah. It's his own thing. Very cranky. Say that, say that one more time for me, Harry. Yeah, say it. This is a, an audio podcast. The name of that book again? <laughs> well, it, it is an audio podcast. I'm sorry. Uh, the Crisis of Liberalism, Prelude to Trump. And how wow. much do you uh, argue with your father about the contents of that book? Uh, we, 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 we call the little truths. Honestly, nothing more. That's, That's all I no. need is the <laughs> yeah. They pick yeah. that up. And that will hopefully, uh, you know, it's good. Go and buy it anyway, because it's, uh, <laughs> it's an it's a very always buy content from Seagulls. This is <laughs> yes, just always, always. It's just basic. even Saul Siegel. Thank you, Harry. Harry Siegel, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks, Harry. Hey, thank, thank you, you Harry. Harry's yeah, Harry's great. Um, Harry's great. Mr. He's he seems to be a great He does, and, and and again, we've. Had an issue with this in the past, so I can only I can only um, sort of breeze by it. But I disagree with Harry on a lot. But uh, oh yeah, he's he's he's. I love when people who I think they're wrong about things, but incredibly smart about them too. And that's Harry. Mm-hmm. He's a formidable opponent, um, but it's always good to just let him let him go because he's the smartest guy I know about New York politics. But it's also yeah. like the, you know the, even the concept of uh, opponent uh, about that feels uh, yeah, off no, to that's, me. That's off. I I I, I do being fun, but like. Uh, like my the people on my team know what they're talking about, regardless of whether I agree with them and have like a, a basic 
um, uh, appreciation for what is true and they elevate that over what is not true, regardless of their interpretation. And I know I make jokes about the Siegel family, but that like that ethic, it's like, it's old school tabloid, New York yeah. newspaper yeah. ethic. And it's glorious. It's glorious. Uh, I, I miss it. I want more of it. Well, that, the reason I say opponent in some ways, because I work with Harry for a long time. And oh, so ha- how Harry him. and I got to know each other really well. I think we wrote a story together one time about Bloomberg. I think I have a, I think I have a dual byline with Harry Siegel somewhere. Um, but uh, we used to go, we used to go out and smoke cigarettes. We both smoked. Harry smoked more than anyone I've ever met. The only person I've ever met that smoked more than Harry was Jake. Uh, so the whole family, <laughs> there was like, you know, how is it fucking going? And so I would go outside the Daily Beast building in, um, I guess it was like on 19th and, you know, between 10th and 11th, where the hell it was. And uh, just stand out there smoking cigarettes and arguing with each other, like in a very nice uh, way. And it's, it's, um, Funny now, because I today was talking to Greg Lukianoff uh, for an interview that I'm doing for Peace, and we had this conversation about how we get back to, it was, it was Greg's kind of conversation about how we get back to a point where we can all be under the same roof and disagree with each other. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about it in the, in the, the sort of world of, of education and schools and, uh, you know, how these CRT and anti-CRT uh, bills and, you know, back and forths that are going on. Um, that it's just that you, people will talk past each other. There's no common ground to be had at all in any way. There's no, no one is trying to find a common ground. They're just, they're just in their corners. And it just reminded me of that in a way when I used to go outside with Harry and he's so good at this is that you'd be like, you are out of your fucking mind. And he'd be like, yeah, yeah, (laughs) and then he'd just argue with you and be smart. And it was always really satisfying to do so. So. And like trying to to figure out what the other person is saying and thinking, this is one thing. I mean, um, like at this point, you do well just hitting mute, not only on like Twitter and social media, but like like creating some headphone system so that when words that become politicized, like cancel culture and critical race theory, whatever the hell, once it reaches a certain crescendo of Mm. being in the debate, that it would just always be muted and you'd be fine because almost all the conversation associated with it after it gets to that threshold is going to be garbage. And it's amazing to see, um, I don't have it in front of me, but Jelani Cobb from The New Yorker, who's someone I've had you know uh, positive interactions with in the past. I think he's gotten increasingly hacky over time. Um, had some you know wildly popular uh, tweet basically saying that the you know objections to critical race theory. You know, make no mistake, <laughs> this is this is about white people not wanting to uh, ever you know say that you know, slavery was a mistake. I'm I'm only slightly exaggerating, but like you see this on both sides of the debate, like uh, a willful intention to not understand why people are, um, are excited about this and also a willful intention not to see the structural problem of wrestling over a local government monopoly on one size fits all education. And so therefore, of course, this is going to happen. I mean, I want to, and I should probably assign this to myself, look back 15 years ago and see what were the state level bills that came um, in response to, what was it called, Michael? Uh, intelligent design um, being taught in public schools. Did I am, you say 15 I years ago? I think it was 15 been, years it ago. It might have been, because you remember the Ben Stein movie called Expelled? In which Ben Stein uh, of, you know, win Ben Stein's money and Ferris Bueller fame, uh, the cover of the DVD has him in like an Angus Young of ACD schoolboy outfit, which is really. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 
about how they're expelling intelligent design from schools. And, you know, it was, it was uh, the opposite before, you know, Camille and I had this conversation and I have more to say about this. When the piece that I'm doing comes out, I spent um, a little bit of time, a lot of time in Florida um, with people on both sides of this and delving into it. And it was really fascinating and not exactly what I thought it was going in. So, um, but yeah, those debates in the past were always from the perspective of conservatives trying to, you know, push something into the curriculum and then sort of people on the other side, liberals left, progressive, what do you want to call them, intervening in both a media sense and both, uh, legislative. I have to look and see what that was. Yeah. But I, me- I mentioned, um, the Texas, I've done it in this, uh, this podcast before, the Texas school board, uh, curriculum, like reforms, quote unquote, in the late 2000s, which made liberals, you know, very, very upset. And I think even, even, to, it was like Ross Douthat. I looked it up and would, had written a bunch about this. And that was to say, well, the Venona, transcripts uh, showed that there actually were communists everywhere in the American government. And so it's always this thing. It's not about truth, right? Because in all of these bills, there is the language of truth. So mm-hmm. I said this to Camille today. We were talking on the phone about this. And I'll maybe reveal a tiny bit of this thing that's that's coming out. The school board meeting in, in Florida, there was a there was a, a, a kerfuff or fluff oh, um, where people got up <laughs> it's and both. tried it's both tried to are there are there kerfluffers yeah 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 of course situation? it's, okay, it's yeah, we yeah. don't this is a family podcast we don't talk about <laughs> sorry um they got up and interrupted the school board meeting these are the sort of blm types they're all wearing blm stuff and they were in the pro crt camp and they i don't think it was planned but it became that the, the protest was planned but what they chanted was teach the truth teach the truth and kept on going and full until the police kind of pushed on. Then I got the, they handed out the amended text of this amendment, the amendment of the amendment in which it basically said, you know, it is illegal to teach things that are false. It has to be the truth. And literally in the thing, it's about truth. And this kind of battle over truth ignores the almost postmodernist thing of like, what is true? Mm -hmm. And no one can tell you. No one has any idea what is true. And they say, well, you don't want to teach the truth. Okay, well, what is the truth? Well, that's a a little more complicated. So all of this stuff, which is a culture war that literally has nothing to do with the kids, nothing. (laughs) You just could give a shit about the kids. It is people up there who don't have any association with the school district on both sides making this case about CRT, anti-CRT. So when you make the points like they even know what CRT is, well, of course they don't. And you know what? The people on the other side don't either. Nobody does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is this culture war thing that people get up in front of the school board and they do this little dog and pony show and they do their screaming and then they get on Fox News. And there was like one person, by the way, at this school board came up, did, you know, it was the public comment period. One minute thing, totally forgotten about. I didn't even remember her. And she left and that was it. And she was a mother and she was black. And she was on the anti-CRT side. Did she make a great speech? No, it was just a really kind of boring thing. Two days later, it was on Fox News that like this woman, because just because she was black, like makes this stirring case. And it was like, well, it was just a normal case. And like that is everyone is weaponizing it for their own side. And on the other side, of course, you saw that stuff too. But the closer you get to this stuff, you the, the more you realize it literally has nothing to do 
with what the kids are taught because one thing is they talk about truth which they don't understand and the other thing is the balance of miseries and the balance of positives that's what this is about because you can teach something that is totally miserable this is what america has done for one whole year and all of it is true in that broad sense of truth but it's kind of unfair right if you're only teaching a howard's in chomsky vision of the world and now on the other side there are these kind of rah-rah patriotic histories that were counter to the Howard Zinn book. Like a, a patriot, there's one called the Patriots History of the United States that was like promoted by Glenn Beck and it sold a billion copies. A guy, a guy named Larry Schweikert wrote it. I don't want that either because that's like an uninterrupted string of American victories and great things that people in America did. That is what the fight is over. Is and meanwhile, how much good well, and let's, how much let's, not, let's not go much further with this because we, next week's guest is all about this. Well, we're just going to warm up. This is, uh, this is us hitting with the helmets on in, in with our, we, with our sparring partner. Sorry. Don't know who next week's guest is. So I'm going to keep talking. Camille. You guys, you guys do know it's Rufa. I know who it is. <laughs> we uh, talked who about could it this. be Matt? <laughs> who could it be now? As uh, Matt flush, at work said, just, uh, just flushing, uh, flushing him out. Uh, no, my, my, uh, uh, to broaden it out of, uh, CRT as a, as a concept, well, the Welch's law, uh, which I'm coining on the fly here, is that every that at a time of uh, polarization, structural, you know, sincere or insincere culture war, every perceived um, neutral institution um, will be the site of a nakedly power struggle, um, mm-hmm. uh, and and it, to such a degree that for most. People who are not as invested in the battle, um, they're just going to be looking for the exits. Like, okay, uh, you know, I got, I got to get out of here. Um, uh, that's, uh, I think you're going to see this repeated every single place where there is, like, where everyone has to go. Um, so everyone has to go to school right now, and what that's going to do is it's going to atomize um, those institutions, including the people who are going to be atomizing the most. And this is definitely happening in the school systems right now. So we're sort of alluding to, I was with, uh, <laughs> Harry, um, is when you push, 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 and everything is equity, 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 and desegregation, systemic racism, and all that kind of stuff. At some point, people are like, okay, it's, uh, okay, okay. I, okay. No, it I'm, doesn't come out I'm, of nowhere. I'm, I'm, I'm confident. I'm, 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 I'm going yeah. to go somewhere else now because I just need to hear something. I, I just need to hear some Todd Rundgren records or anything. Yeah. To, <laughs> well, this is just to be different. This is why I'm 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 very skeptical of and have been of the catastrophists on these issues because I, I saw uh, Matt Iglesias actually throw up a poll earlier today about critical race theory. It's like 64 percent of people say they've heard at least a little about critical race theory, and 35 percent of the total people in this YouGov poll or survey um, said that they had some idea what it was. And I imagine of that 35%, 90% have actually have no idea what it is. Probably even higher. Maybe I'm, one, I'm one of them. Have no idea, have no what, idea it what it is. Exactly. I mean, this is not the Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw people. Yeah. It is, it is the catch all term, but the, the important thing to not go to, to go over the territory that we'll, we'll go over next week, which will be slightly more, um, Sharp, I imagine, because mm-hmm. we, I think we have some disagreements on this, is that um, there is a, a sense that people have that there's a uniqueness to what's happening now. Mm-hmm. The uniqueness is only in how it's being transmitted, in the fact that Tucker Carlson can come on every night into every home if he wants, because you know everybody can watch Fox News, whether it's on YouTube or on on their cable dial. 
and get some kind of you know comment about this. If you go back to John Birch Society stuff, if you go back to the kind of the anti-red stuff of the 50s and the kind of Zinn stuff of trying to correct the textbooks. I mean, remember Francis Fitzgerald, the writer Francis Fitzgerald, who wrote a book called, I think it was Remembering, wasn't Remembering America, but it was about American history textbooks. It came out in the late 70s, early 80s. And this was a battleground. It's always been a battleground. It's always people highlighting stuff. Well, we shouldn't say that. That's a little too far. And this is not new. Now we call it CRT or whatever it is. But now it is being funneled in this time of equity, in this time of the racial reckoning, and so now everybody is, you know, amplifying it and it's everywhere. But these things go on everywhere, whether it's religious instruction, whether it's, you know, evolution, whatever it might be, whether it's American how we, foreign policy, American like foreign uh, policy. teaching in the German language, which is kind of an issue in the 1920s. Yeah. 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 I, you know, I would speak German in my, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, Liberty Garden or whatever they were called when you were, yeah. you were growing cabbage. But yeah, like it is, it, this is a, a thing that never ends. And now we're in a time in which, like, particularly in the pandemic and everyone's at home getting angry at each other. And if you don't care about politics, you're still getting angry, by the way. That's not a thing that goes away if you don't care about politics. The anger in that kind of, you know, people screaming out of the window, uh, I'm mad as hell, I can't take it anymore sort of stuff. It might be at Chrissy Teigen. It might be that is a thing that people talk about. They're mad at what Jake Paul (laughs) said, this constant anger on Twitter and on Instagram and people trying, you don't cancel people for fucking politics only. You cancel people in the world of Instagram and YouTube stars. My, my 12 year old comes down to the dinner table every day and announces who got canceled. And of course, none of them actually got canceled in the way that we mean them. It's just, (laughs) it's a word that they mean for like mildly bullied for a half a second um, of the famous people. And uh, she doesn't know a, a damn thing about politics. It just, that, Camille is right. And what is she? A, what is her take on Chris Teigen? Uh, she's not. She's more about the Paul family, and she's starting mm-hmm. to get into like the the boxing and uh, uh, and she likes. I to watched tell the her fight. Mom. It was a throne fight. It was ridiculous. It, it, it was absolutely <laughs> absolutely terrible. Uh, but like just to to amend what uh, Michael said about everyone's being mad. Yes, everyone's mad except for the people. And and hopefully uh, a lot of you listening to this are are some of those people who uh, instead went outside. Because yeah. like go, going outside, um, like in New York, found the anger. Yeah, in Miami, it's pretty great because like it's a bunch of young people absolutely smoking pot and like not wearing many clothes and like having a really good time. You're looking at young people not wearing clothes. Man? Yes, yeah, you can't. They there? their their bits mm. are looking at you, uh, oh whether or not. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. who's a professor at the Jeffrey Epstein Institute? Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm young. I'm saying twenty, like twenties. I'm not talking about fourteen here. I have to say, get Torre on the podcast. The, the pandemic was like because he is, interviewed I, R. Kelly. I, so <laughs> I didn't want that to go R. the wrong Kelly way. Moment right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you might want to cut this. No, keep it. It's fine. No, keep, keep, keep it, it off. Keep it. Uh-oh. Here's We're the, humans. Like, it, it is almost like the pandemic has almost been like you're looking at the wrapped Christmas presents under the tree for fucking 12 months, and uh-huh. then you just get to unwrap them, and you're like, oh, look at all this good shit. That would have sort of was like today <laughs> when I was in the city. I was like, 
holy cow. Holy this cow. Is, I can't. Holy you cow. need you to put me in an yourself. Uber and send me to a convent or send me to ISIS or something. Oh, my uh-huh. God. It is like, what the hell happened? Moynihan's out there humping legs. He's humping fire hydrants. <laughs> I don't know. I got, I'm just getting numbers. I'm just, well, I, just <laughs> come on, man. I would be I would be remiss if I didn't didn't mention um, the 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 I guess debate in in name only uh, that Virginia Heffernan and I had. um, Oh, who is that? um, L.A. Times opinion columnist, and um, well, I guess she's contributes opinions there. I don't I don't know if that makes her a columnist, but she's a Wired columnist. I I guess she writes a weekly column that she was awarded. A couple of years ago, that's what I okay. heard. Would well, we, she we had Russia every time, or what? Well, I'm I'm not sure, but we should we should at some point we probably have her on. We had like a really wonderful, uh, I thought, an interesting exchange about some of these related topics. Cancel culture, in particular, was the was the principal theme. Although everyone involved in the debate like actually hates the phrase, um, and she actually has an interesting position on this, being someone who has in fact been canceled. Uh, multiple oh. times, as she describes it, um, and still considers herself a, uh, a a supporter of the the regime of cancel culture. But we had an interesting exchange, um, which I would I would commend to people. I think you'll enjoy it if you go hey, Matt, find it on the Newsweek podcast. Yeah. Um, do you know how he said all those nice things about Virginia Heffernan? And she's like, oh, she's amazing. This is my. Did you see the tweet that she sent him? This is how he. It's how he <laughs> she referred to him as the peerless. Was true. Camille Foster. Peerless. I mean, it's just oh, those are just facts. Oh. Those There's no peer. Peerless. He has no peer. It's true. Who has no peer? Right. Yeah. All she has to do is say that, and he's like, "We're built different." I love yeah. you, <laughs> man. You so you so good. But, but Have you seen my refurbs? Oh man, my refurbs are nice. Is the is the GLU is behind that baby? <laughs> I get it. I get Speaking it. of the GR, come on, yeah. Uh, Joe Biden, Vladimir Putin, oh, he's Geneva, Switzerland is going down, or or not, or everything is getting better. I don't know. But they had a conversation. They talked about all manner of things, particularly human rights. Some issues there, tensions between Russia and the United States. Uh, they've agreed, it sounds like, to, to restart conversations about uh, an arms treaty. It sounds like we're sending an ambassador back there and they're sending one back to us, which is okay, that's good. Um, and um, explicitly, uh, some, some conversation that actually parallels something we talked about recently. They talked about some of the cybersecurity issues, which have been in the news recently, uh, some very prominent attacks, which we talked about, um, both in oil pipeline and with respect to food supplies. Um, and there was essentially a bit of a threat issued by Joe Biden, who told uh, Vladimir Putin to get all of this stuff under control. And if you don't, you can expect reprisals in kind. Um, from Michael Moynihan, which you learned <laughs> last week, <laughs> which means which means the United States doing its own its own hacking. I think he suggested that we had some very extensive cyber cyber warfare capabilities. I'm not sure exactly how he phrased that, um, but you know, gentlemen, I, I wonder if you paid much attention to this. If you think this is very important, I mean, most of the media coverage seemed to be um, contrasting the Biden yeah, approach right. to the Trump approach, Trump being the the guy who, you know, when he was having engagement with Russia for, for mysterious reasons that people can't seem to, to disentangle. Um, Mr. Trump was inclined 
to at least endorse and say he believed uh, some of, of Mr. Putin's claims uh, about not having uh, done any sort of election meddling. Yeah. Um, it's not hard to figure out why he would say that. Um, but also just generally that this was kind of a, an unprofessional um, approach and that the, the grownups are back in charge now. And, you know, there was a, a, an air of seriousness to all of this. Um, I wonder if that's kind of the, the narrative that seems most important to either of you. Uh, there was also a, a somewhat tense exchange uh, between Joe Biden and uh, a member of the press corps who asked the question about his CNN. optimism uh, that uh, Vladimir Putin would start to kind of get into line. Um, and, and Joe responded a bit sharply um, at, at one point, telling this journalist that if you do not understand uh, why I haven't kind of more forcefully gone after the man in this context, you should probably be in a different line of work. Uh, which is not not quite calling the journalists the Fake enemy news. of the people, but you know it's a little bit tough. But he anyways, later he later apologized. Well, how much? How much does? How much does this stuff matter? Is there anything interesting here worth talking about? It certainly seems important to me um, that we might at some point in the near future see some sort of offensive, muscular cyber hacking conducted by the United States against Russian infrastructure potentially. <laughs> like, name a president from uh-huh. Ronald Reagan on who hasn't had this interaction with Russia and starting with George W. Bush, Vladimir Putin. I mean, you remember he looked into his eyes and saw his soul, right? That's yeah, what George yeah. W. Bush said. And of course, John McCain countered, I looked into his eyes and I saw KGB. Saw KGB. Right? Yeah. Which, is, which is closer <laughs> to the truth, actually. Um, you know, yeah, the 90s were. Had a good line. It's a good line. The 90s were a weird, I mean, obviously Reagan had the Gorbachev stuff. The 90s were a weird period with Yeltsin and then uh, coming into to Putin. But there was hopefulness at that point. The engagement was pretty regular. Was Stroke Talbot? Yeah, I mean, even in the Balkan stuff, which was a very uh, tense uh, moment with uh, Russia, I had a very long three-hour conversation with Strobe Talbot about this that I have somewhere that I think I should post. It was great. It was really interesting. Mm. And then on to um, the reset you know, Hillary Clinton bringing it, the, the button with the misspelled reset <laughs> on it. Reset. Yeah, and it, it's like, and you looked at it, it was like one of those Japanese t-shirts. It was like, hello, Mr. Fun Times. And it was like a button and it was like, yeah, it says reset. Like, no, it doesn't. And then, and then there was that. And then, of course, um, uh, Trump, et cetera. So we do this all the time. What happens as a result? Nothing. Absolutely nothing ever. And so if this were Donald Trump doing the exact same thing, exact same playbook, you would have seen at the beginning of this people criticizing him because Joe Biden came out and sounded sort of Trumpian and saying, you know, he's a smart, talented guy and kind of batting away um, questions about him. uh, Because, you know, he was asked, like, do you still you think he's a killer? And he's like, yeah, that was a different time. You know, and he, he refused to actually engage in that now. Um, why? Because, you know, he's trying not to offend him. This is the first mm-hmm. meeting, et cetera. But what is the purpose of any of this stuff? What is the purpose? Like, what is going to be achieved? Vladimir Putin comes out after and has this hilarious 
bizarro thing where he's like, you know how big his hackers in the world are? I'll give you a list. And you, did you hear this? Where he's like, he's like, number one, United States. Number two, Canada. And he's like going, <laughs> he's like, number three, Germany. And he goes, he said, and he said, he literally ended this way. He's like, where is Russia on the list? He's not on the list. And it's like, not on the, yeah, yeah, it's like, just yeah. ask Estonia. Estonia, yeah, not on the list. so full of shit. <laughs> and he's like, bye-bye. And then he's interviewed by NBC and they uh, bring up uh, Alexei Navalny and very pointedly, mm-hmm. he will not say his name. Yeah. And credit to the NBC uh, reporters, like, you're not going to say his name. He's like, I don't care about these people. And, but the whole thing of like, you know, and he, he responds, Putin responds about Ashley Babbitt. Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, she's not running against Donald Trump or running against Joe Biden. And like, she po- like Joe Biden poisoned her and then arrested her and then put her in. Like these are fundamentally different things. And this is not like ordered on high. This was a cop that did this. We don't know who it is. They haven't released the person. Mm-hmm. Um, but so like there's all of this back and forth. And Joe Biden says, you know, I, I, I really brought it to him about the hacking stuff. And, you know, we're going to talk about it in the future. This doesn't get us anywhere. This is a mm. one long photo up. Nobody gives a shit. You know, by the Biden administration is not going to change. The Putin administration is not going to change. There's not going to be any material difference in anything. What mm-hmm. is given? What what is you know like? Okay, you stop hacking us, and then what happens? Vladimir Putin has been doing this for so fucking long. And the one thing on the end of this that I noticed was that he's still the same guy. He's still the Bond villain. He still talks like a Bond villain. The one thing I noticed is I have avoided this. And you can go back to all episodes of the fifth column and maybe made a joke about it, but I've avoided. There is something going on with Biden. It's just, he just was not on top of it. And his responses were bizarre, uh, included some like long 10 second pauses. His uh, handlers kept on interrupting and asking no more questions. It's so much so that CNN's like, was it Jeff Zeleny or something from CNN was like, this is kind of unprecedented the way his handlers are actually intervening and preventing the media from asking questions. Mm. And it's because he came out the second day and it was much harsher on Putin because they were like worried about him sounding Trumpian and conciliatory to Putin the first day. So the only thing that I took away from this is no material difference in foreign policy is Mm. that Joe Biden is, he's not uh, on top of his game. I'll just put it that way. That's, I have not mentioned that before because I thought it was kind of overstated at some point. Probably mentioned it. I probably mentioned it, it, but 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 we haven't, we haven't, we haven't talked about that a bunch. Yeah. In the debates, he actually, well, we had expectations, I think, that he would be even worse in those debates. And in the debates in particular, like he, he was getting extra naps. I don't know. They, they were, you know, yeah, shooting, shooting him up with fucking. something special. <laughs> yeah. Or he'd just do a couple lines of Coke. But I mean, uh, Joe was, he would, was kind of on in the he debates. He would fade. He would fade in the, in the second halves of them. I, uh, he might, was but I was, I was expecting worse. Come on. <laughs> um, I was at the LA Times, uh, editorial board, uh, when he came through. Um, in 2006 or 2007, um, he's probably still had pretensions of running for president. I forget uh, what the exact circumstance was, but, um, we sat as you do with a politician, not to produce anything that a reader might see, Mm. but so that, um, the politician and the editorial board both know that they're very important and are having important conversations. My, uh, (laughs) one of my attempted reforms that we got a little bit in when we were there was like, can we tape record these and release them to the public? I don't know. 
That's crazy. Can we just do that? Because that like would be that'd be editorial like product, and it'd be interesting. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and we got a few of them, but like uh, like a lot of uh, attempted reformers there, it didn't exactly work. But I don't think that we recorded this particular one. I do remember the conversation. It was a lot about how uh, Iraq needs to be broken up into three countries. That was his big yeah. idea at that was the, the time. Peter, Peter Galbraith's idea, yeah. It's Peter Galbraith's idea, and. Um, in a room with a guy for an hour and change and there wasn't a hint even once of like oh cognitive difficulties on a guy who back then was whatever 65 years old just didn't it wasn't part of the conversation he was loquacious kind of shallow but well-informed interesting whatever senator he was a senator that's what senators do they talk what is he 78 is that how old he is now uh yeah is he is he no north of eighty or maybe seventy eight so like back then he was more early early sixties uh, fifteen years ago but that's um, old I mean that's still not I mean I'm getting there too I don't but like much. <laughs> I'm not insulting him when I yeah say yeah him. he's just yeah, an old yeah. guy that's just no cog- cognitive decline as you age is is just a thing this is a material I mean, fact we we have observed this in people and there should be expectations that we would observe this in the president mm-hmm. of the United States and I I mean I I've seen the same thing um, and I I also think that there is seems to be a, a reliable effort to not necessarily focus on that narrative in various ways and and to to push competing narratives. Yeah. He's never been, you know, a particularly gifted speaker. He stutters and stammers. I mean, he used to steal other people's words and deliver them. Yeah. It would be interesting. This is slightly worse. it would be interesting to measure the the column inches. I don't know exactly how you do it now or our airtime mm. of people making similar claims about uh, Trump's uh, uh, cognitive uh, decline sure. or alleged cognitive uh, decline, which uh, I don't really think has happened. I, you know, I, I, I'm uh, I'm more persuaded uh, of uh, of the thesis that he like he gave up the uh, pretensions of trying to impress the New York Times crowd mm-hmm. and started like talking like a like a the the piece of Long Island trash that he really is. Um, <laughs> He's Queens, come on, or Queens, whatever. That's all. I mean, it's on the island, Michael. That's what I'm saying. Well, yeah. The, what, the what one did you know about the island, but um, oh, uh, uh, no, like uh, Camille, to answer you, to your first question, I, I, yes, it doesn't matter all that much. Um, one slight way in which there's a difference between. Um, the Trump era and and the Biden era, which is worth remarking on without over exaggerating it, is that um, Trump with uh, Putin in Helsinki was very obsequious and um, went off and had a secret meeting with him, mm-hmm. um, went on a kind of an extended rant that I'm sure was pleasing to certain paleo libertarians but is arguably not exactly what a u.s president should be doing on a national stage which is talking about hey you know like they've done bad things well we've done bad things too um which is true <laughs> it's absolutely true and is that the job of the president in that context There's they've done argu- they've done they've done worse they've done, they've done worse kinda, things it's kind of it's, true but not entirely it's they've done they've done worse things so like like what i want in uh presidential relations with that Awful, awful human being who, if I'm not mistaken, on the independence television program, we labeled the world's foremost enemy of freedom, Camille Foster, uh, back in uh, 2004 or five. Um, and uh, I want a U.S. president to sort of realistically be saying, yeah, he sucks. We got to do business. There's not a big deliverable in this meeting. We're going to agree to talk later about some stuff. Um, 
and as long as it's not um, going into some super dark bad place, mm-hmm. um, I want I want an American foreign policy that is threatening less but calling out more. Mm-hmm. That is that is. That is saying the truthful uh, badness of right. what uh, bad people are doing and bad countries are doing and bad leaders are doing, um, but uh, without like the implied or explicit threat of like yes, and because you're doing this, we are going to uh, therefore like you know hive off uh, you know Abkhazia, make it our own or whatever. So like, basically, mm-hmm. you're you're interested in toothless declarations from American <laughs> prisoners. Absolutely, I, mean, I, I am. Sure, why I not? I I am in. I am absolutely in favor of toothlessness. No, yeah. it's, yeah. it's, 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 no, it's rhetor- rhetorical leadership, moral authority in that respect. I, I yeah, think there's I there's mean, something there's something to that. As we talked about in the you in fuck the, up my uh, pipeline, I'm gonna take your shit down. That's what I would say. <laughs> I'm gonna knock, you know. Well, well, I, apparently, he said that. Like Moynihan is the secretary of cyber warfare. Although uh, the, what we're the difficulty, the difficulty yeah, I have with be that, more cyber warfare for, the, for me. <laughs> well, the yeah. difficulty I have with that is that actually dealing with like culpability in, in these circumstances is just hard. It is actually hard to determine whether or not like these are state actors behind these things. It, definitively, in some cases, so I would, I and, would and getting that you. getting that wrong actually makes a lot of, make, of is a big is a big deal in amplifying these things in severe ways, having an impact on people's like regular lives. Like it, it could become a nasty kind of downward spiral when the solution to this problem really is resilience and not so much your you know your offensive capability your ability to make them hurt as badly as you do like resilience is the only meaningful strategy because the the reality is that these attacks can in fact emanate from fucking anywhere sure and and, and, you know just to be clear you're both wrong about this so i want to just start with that um if i would recommend uh reading the indictment uh surrounding the dnc hack Mm-hmm. And you'll see how they, they, they let on as much as they possibly can and trace it back to actual individuals that is, you can't be clearer than this. And it's absolutely clear that it was, you know, Russians that were working for the FSB. I mean, look, look at the Bellingcat stuff, for instance, on the Skripal stuff. That is one of, if anyone wants to see real journalism, Rather than sitting on your fucking duff and complaining like I do, um, that uh, Bellingcat stuff on the the Skripal assassination is amazing. They literally through people that they had in Russia and Americans have the American intelligence has better capabilities than these guys do. Got the passport photos of the people that were in, that day in the town in England. What was they were in some I can't remember what it was like Salisbury or something, and they've got the passports that they were using in various places under various names. And they're clearly FSB mm-hmm. people. If you look at the, the, the investigation, it is one of the more impressive things I've seen in recent times. The United States actually has capabilities beyond that. And so I don't actually think they're flying off half-cocked on a lot of this stuff. I, I certainly hope they, they, they're not. Now, you know, people say, well, you know, what about Iraq? What about Iraq and the WMDs? It's like, well, the thing about Iraq and the WMDs is that that was a different intelligence gathering operation that fooled everybody. It fooled the BND in Germany. It fooled MI6 in the UK. It fooled French intelligence. Everyone was on the same page with the bad, bad information because there was really no way of getting that stuff in 
um, Iraq. So they relied heavily on people like curveball and phonies and liars. And they, of course, wanted that information to be true. So there's always that confirmation bias that is possible. But on, when it comes to things like this, on the cyber stuff, there's fingerprints everywhere. And you can tell if you look at the code on you know, various, various things, nothing in particular that you can, you can, it's not always the code, by the way, it's just some things in the code, they find patterns in how people uh, do certain things, but they're fairly good at this. But you can fake those things. things. You can fake those things. And and, and it has been done. It has been done. It's only so hard. But look, but look at that, that uh, indictment in the specificity of it. What I am, I am like you, Camille, I'm distrustful of people who say cozy bear, Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, that's the Russian catch-all. It's like the CRT of of intelligence. You say cozy bears, the Russian stuff. But when you see the actual very, very specific stuff, and one of the things that makes me think this is that when you go back to what prosecutors were saying in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, when it came to intelligence stuff, when, when you say the Rosenbergs, for instance, they couldn't tell you. Alger Hiss, especially, they couldn't tell you. And the stuff that they actually had that they were like champing at the bit, like, I really wish I could tell them that Alger Hiss is Ales, A-L-E-S, in the Venona transcripts. We know, but we can't tell you. The actual capability of these people, and the only reason I say this is not because I have any trust in the government at all. I'm absolutely none. But I did a couple of stories on this and talked to a few people that were outside, but were kind of very, very tapped into inside. And they explained to me in some detail of, you know, in one particular a, a PLA thing and how they trace some things back to the PLA. And it's really, really fascinating. We're also people that in tandem with uh, Israel can just speed up those rotors ever so much on centrifuges at Natanz and it blows the whole fucking thing up. How that code got into a facility that's not online, who knows? But mm-hmm. they did it. And it's really fucking impressive. That is, I mean, of course, it ultimately gets out there because people reverse engineer it. And somebody like Kaspersky is like, why is there this thing that is spidering through our computers and doing nothing? And then they look backwards and let's say, oh, they're looking for Siemens rotor boxes inside a nuclear facility. And that's how this stuff gets out. But we are exceptionally good at that. And I think even Edward Snowden acknowledges the capability of, of, of the U.S. on stuff like this. Just unfortunately, we do the wrong things with it. And, you know, yeah. on I, don't, I don't doubt the capability. I, I suppose my, my concern here is that in many instances, there are folks who would probably regard this as, you know, not not a big deal because you know yeah. people aren't necessarily getting hurt you know there's no munitions being dropped but but that's good the possibility of escalation is material um so again just getting it right focusing on being more resilient considering that the threat could genuinely emanate from any place is a, is a really big deal and worth yeah. worth keeping in mind. No, we talked mind. about the so, North Korea stuff on yeah. as it regards to the the interview, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's a new BBC podcast on this that's kind of annoying, but has some good information on it, and that <laughs> nobody believed it. They were like, North Korea doesn't have the capability of fucking coding Pong, much less <laughs> doing this. And well, they did, yeah. and they're very impressive. And I interviewed a guy in Seoul one time who defected from the cyber unit of the North Korean sort of, I think they were affiliated with the army and he was like, no, 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 we're really good at this stuff. (laughs) And if we're not, we hire it from, from outside. We actually pay other people to do it. Well, 
couple of places we could go. And I mean, we've been, been going for a little while, so we should probably wrap soon, but I'm, I'm interested because we've been gone for a while now um, because we were on in Florida and then we had some, some other ca- content to release and we got to get this, uh, this, uh, a, a cut of our live stuff up. Cause we had a yeah. great show with, uh, with Nick Gillespie, which a, a lot of folks, um, who have already heard, uh, these via the Patreon cause they're paying patrons of this podcast. And uh, I mean, come on, seriously, we don't inundate you with ads. We're allowed to, to talk about the fact there's a paid version of the podcast. You don't have to pay for it. We're not charging you for this one. You could pay though, and if you would do, they be mad if we stuff. did the thing that, like, in the middle of a podcast where people pretend they're earnest about something, and they're like, <laughs> you know, Camille, that's a really interesting point. But you know what else is interesting? This chair I'm sitting in, comfortable. <laughs> yeah, I just, like, right, right. I just got this chair. I just got it. It's, it's the amazing. best chair. Yeah, I feel incredible. Well, <laughs> can I just say I, I went to look on the Patreon page, our uh-huh. Patreon page, uh-huh. uh, to see whether Moynihan had put up the uh, the part two yet, which he hasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's, it'll go up. Not not busting balls. Just yeah. just like all right, it'll, be, it'll be up before this comes up. By the way, uh, no oh, doubt. Um, and uh, there's a pop up ad saying Patreon panel, Black Music Month, the yeah. future and history of ownership. What so, does that mean? Uh, I don't know ownership. It said 2020 highlighted the systemic problems affecting the music industry, leading to an uptick in artists owning more of their work and proving that creator control is essential. You know what, people? Concerned own about, your own work. Are fucking they concerned great. about Kanye's not not having the ability to own his own masters? He's a fucking billionaire. Get over it. Uh, or uh, <laughs> Taylor, or <laughs> Taylor Swift. You know, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Or oh, Bob Dylan who sold is, his entire catalog. Well, well, maybe maybe that's an indication of where we ought to go next because there's two two things that I'm thinking about. I mean, there's the January sixth situation, which at least has a, a, some hooks to the Russia Putin Biden uh, meeting today because, uh, as you mentioned, I think Moynihan Putin mentions January sixth several times um, while defending himself from questions about his own misconduct, uh, but also. Classic it Russian suggests, yeah. but but what's what's interesting though? He, is he actually used the it. word many times. By the way, what he kept saying, "What about? What about? <laughs> what about?" But the great. but the way he what invokes it is very Chrissy interesting. Tegan? It's very bad. <laughs> He's like Navalny, <laughs> Chrissy Evers. What they're doing to Chrissy Hind? It's 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 unconscionable. But it's interesting because he invokes it both to suggest that you guys are also pretty bad. But he also is suggesting, but we don't want those problems. We didn't have any sort of weird January 6th situation. And that's because I could kill a motherfucker. We get rid of those people. (laughs) They're not around anymore. You had all that Black Lives Matter, that all those problems. You guys put your neck, knees on the necks of black people over there. We don't do that here. We don't have them problems. I have problems with people that disappear. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Next question. Yeah, you you got a follow up? It, it Are you sure? A little bitter, but it's good. <laughs> Trust me, it's fine. Um, but but I, I'm interested in this domestic surveillance um, stuff and the domestic terrorism strategy that's been announced by the Biden administration. Um, and hearings, I think this week, where Christopher Ray was back uh, on Capitol Hill and he was answering questions for uh, members of Congress, talking specifically about January 6th and lessons learned. And there was a moment there where he had this exchange with AOC, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Is it, is it okay to, to do both things? I don't know. Whatever. Um, but they had this exchange where she's asking him uh, about the potential culpability of the FBI in being sort of underprepared and not doing enough uh, to surveil people who were posting things online before January, the events of January 6th. And the 
example that she gave, I thought was like pretty interesting. You know, she's talking about folks who were planning for the, the events at the Capitol out in the open, you know, talking about the guillotines and sharing plans, um, and layouts of the building, et cetera, et cetera. And asking the FBI, essentially, why weren't you doing more to surveil these people online? And the answer that comes back is, look, there are restrictions on the things that we're allowed to do. Um, and, you know, perhaps this should be a learning lesson and we ought to be able to do more. Uh, and there have been uh, different sections of the intelligence community that have been asking for broader powers. The Biden administration seems broadly interested um, in, in giving them broader powers and authority. And there was a recent joint report um, from, I believe it was Homeland Security, um, and the Federal Bureau of Investigations about domestic terrorism since 2015 or 2016 and the trend lines and just how devastating it is. And I mean, I, I remain very concerned about kind of the level of, uh, I think hysteria is the best word for it, um, around kind of the threat of domestic terrorism and even the hand-wringing about, you know, the QAnon, are they getting ready to potentially uh, unleash hell again? Are they are they uh, seemingly kind of disassembling only to crop up someplace else and plan some act of terrorism? Like it seems important to me that the examples that Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is using while asking her questions are things that actually did not, in fact, happen. That people were pe- there, there were people who were sharing these plans online and talking about setting up guillotines on the mall or near the Capitol building, but that didn't actually happen. It, it wasn't the case that people were kind of moving through the Capitol and, and grabbing congresspersons. And what we do know, having seen some of this, um, some reporting on this and some early sort of studies come out of the various entities that were involved in trying to secure the Capitol that day, is that there was a massive failure just when it comes to crowd control. And actually maintaining a sufficient security presence that day and not this broad threat that was posed by this well-organized entity that had this grand plan for overthrowing the government that it implemented, um, you know, to perfection and but for, you know, a stroke of luck, you know, the country wouldn't exist anymore. It, It seems like really important that we are proceeding to a place where we're talking about granting new powers and authorities to people and and broader surveillance of Americans based on the posts that they're making on social media in response to something that was far more kind of distributed and disorganized than people seem to remember, or at least are inclined to acknowledge. Do we have any... Direct, and I'm sure that there's something out there, um, posts, whether they're on Gab or whatever these fucking lunatics are on, um, saying, this Horror. is what we're going to do. We're going we're, we're gonna to storm the Capitol. We're going to get inside. We're going to go into the office. We're going to do all that. You know, the hard thing here in that none of these people appreciate, and you have to have some measure of sympathy for the people trying to keep, keep a handle on this stuff is to differentiate what's real and what isn't. Mm-hmm. Because I would advise everybody to go out and go to Google and just do one of those time-limited searches for the past six months and find the number of people 
um, or do it from three years ago. It's easier probably to judge that way. The number of people, public figures, semi-public figures, journalists who said they got death threats and they were worried. The number of those that actually materialized into anything even close to someone visiting their house is almost zero. People say a lot of shit online and you mm-hmm. get desensitized to it. And people say, oh, these, you know, those uh, like uh, Facebook people, they, they ignore all this stuff. It's like they're looking at shit all day. Mm-hmm. You know, basically snuff videos, basically, like, and they, they get kind of desensitized to it. So it's really, really hard in some ways to actually delineate what is real and what is, what isn't because, and this is undeniable. So don't fucking debate me on this. People listening, not you guys, um, people who send me stupid messages. It is undeniable that they get if you look online, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of these things that aren't actionable and never are actionable. And there are blowhard losers blowing off steam and doing like, are there people that it's easier to kind of, to kind of say, well, okay, well, these people are traveling. Yeah. But even that, I mean, how do you have the manpower to kind of narrow that down and say, okay, this is definitely what's going to happen. People were showing up. They knew that. They knew 50,000 people or whatever are going to show up and say the election is being stolen. That is enough. That is enough to actually have a pretty significant security perimeter around the Capitol. It is not saying that this stuff wasn't serious. It's not saying that what these people did was right or just basic protest. It's just that these people in hindsight on, I watch, I watched that hearing and it drove me fucking insane. These people saying like, you know, why didn't you do, there was, you know, somebody posted a screenshot that said this guy was going like, it's not that easy. It's mm-hmm. not that easy. Some guy saying, I'm going to do something stupid and crazy. And it turns out to be true. Mm-hmm. So yes, I'm, I, I wish they had better capabilities on this that actually limited their own power to dig into people's personal material. Cause that that's a trade off that you don't want to make. But the other thing is I guarantee you, if, if you could go back in time and, and you'd talk to AOC about the, Threat, the threat from, you know, jihadism or Islamic extremism. They would at that time, as so many people on her side of the aisle did say, this is vastly overstated. This is after 3000 people were incinerated in America in a terrorist attack. And then that kind of moved to Europe and there was cascading terrorist attacks in Spain, a vicious bombing that killed hundreds of people, a bombing in the London underground, various stabbings and people being run over in France, filmmakers in the Netherlands being stabbed in the chest with a fucking note appended to it. This was serious at the time. People, and at the same time, when there was expanded powers from the Bush administration, so many people on AOC's side of the aisle said, let's actually draw this back. You know, the people that you are arresting in Lakwana, for instance, you can go look that one up, are being set up. They're being pushed into these things. The FBI is like, do we want more of that? Because they were opposed to it then, but they don't seem to be opposed to that now. And they're certainly not worrying about, you know, the consequences of expanded FBI powers to, you know, surveil people in, in, in the U.S. Here's a way of thinking about this that I think people don't because January 6th was just traumatic to witness, experience, even like, you know, just watching it on television. It was harrowing. Okay, what's the worst that could have happened that day? Um, like, indulge in your dark fantasy. What is the worst that could have happened? Um, some of those mobs could have gotten their hands on some of the politicians that they were naming and could have hurt them or killed them. They could, have, brought, they, they could have been armed. 
and they weren't. It, it could have, they could have, they could have been armed. They could have killed Mike Pence. They could have killed Mitt, Mitt Romney if they would have saw AOC. They could have killed her, right? Like it could have been a really, really bad day, and yet Joe Biden would still be, and probably even more, be the next president. <laughs> um, like it was, I don't think that anything that would have happened that day would have changed that calculus. Um, if you uh, then ask yourself going forward. Um, looking at all the stuff that happened that day and the stuff that's related to that, um, what is the biggest threat to our democracy going forward that has something to do with January 6th? Um, take it from the largely democratic view uh, of, and maybe independent view of like, God, that was really traumatic. The Trump people are awful. I can't believe that we went through that. All right. So just from that point of view, what is the actual threat that we face? In my view, it's not, you know, guy with horns in the chest and the mobs and the, and the, you know, the weird chants and all that stuff. It's not, although that's traumatic and that could have ended up in actual deaths of people. The biggest threat is that 50% of Republicans refuse to vote for the certification of the election of a president. And that there are many people, Republican officials, especially in places like Arizona and other places who uh, have internalized a, a uh, conspiracy theories about what have happened then as the explanation. And if we're in a position of decision-making power about either that or something similar going forward would just pull the stupid lever uh, on, on their behalf in, in absolute kind of uh, uh, just uh, crazy defiance of what they should do and what reality is. I worry about that. That's something to worry about and to think about protection of um, is uh, is protecting the Capitol building from weirdos in a specific event, violent weirdos. Some of them were in a specific event, the big worry going forward. Um, or is it that? For me, it's that. Um, maybe that's an idiosyncratic belief, but I think if you're no, thinking think pragmatically, that's, that's what it is. But also remember, and 9-11 is a great thing here too, as is even – and it's a rabbit hole. Don't want to open up at this late in the podcast, but like um, with ideas about increased tax collection that we're that the Elizabeth Warren and the Biden administration are throwing out there right now, um, like um, like uh, you start to understand or at least be open to the uh, the uh, interpretation that post nine eleven, post January sixth, and generally speaking, post any moment where the government wants more money than it currently has, like. Okay, that might be not might not be the step that you take to address the problem as stated, but it's a step that would really come in handy to just prosecute people. I mean, bureaucracies and enforcement bureaucracies in particular, um, and this is really great public choice stuff. They will do things to solidify and increase their power. They are opportunists too. They are ambulance chasers too. Uh, and so all these bureaucracies after 9-11, like, great. And Joe Biden was right there. He's like, I've been talking about the Patriot Act or like the precursor of the Patriot Act for years in the 90s. And finally we can get it done. Like it, these quotes are almost exact um, what he said after 9-11. Um, and these bureaucracies do too. So they look at, the FBI looks at January 6th and says, great. We can ask all Democrats right now for powers to do things that Democrats would have never agreed to after 9-11, or at least, you know, a few years after 9-11, having to do with American Muslims. 
great. We get more power. By whatever means necessary, we get more power. And that power is going to be used, to be sure, against normal Americans much more than it's going to be used against the people who actually might pose the threat going forward. So keep your fucking eye on the ball, people, about all of this right now, because it's opportunistic bureaucracies um, taking advantage of the political passions that you are feeding into. Hopefully those who you listen to this don't feed into it as much, um, but they'll take advantage of it to try to increase their uh, ability to get into your stuff, into your communications, into everything. It's fucked. It's fucked, and it should be opposed early and often. Just a quick note of that is I do absolutely co-sign the idea that um, you know half of the Republican caucus that uh, says, yeah, it wasn't a real election. And it really disturbed me when I was doing that Texas piece and everybody that I talked to, I found one person, one person in 10 days that would, that would say that Joe Biden actually won the election. One person, and he was the head of the college Republicans at UT Austin. And that is disturbing. That is, that is uh, very, very troubling. And the other troubling thing that people should keep in mind is the definitional thing. We talked about, we talked about this earlier in CRT and whatever. The definition thing of who is the enemy and who is a white nationalist and who is a extremist and everything that's where these powers get way too broad and you know again a conversation we had about uh islamic extremists right i mean i remember sammy l arion the professor uh in florida who went to prison uh, for you know sending money to suicide bombers in kuwait or something and whose daughter i think is it writes for the nation magazine Lila, Layla, Elarian. But yeah, there was all of these cases that were hugely controversial and they were kind of definitional in, in scope. It was like, what does it mean to be a supporter of terrorism? There was one, I think it was a guy from Sudbury, Massachusetts, who was, it was basically a speech case. It ended up being like he was supporting things online, but was actually not doing anything materially. People and, providing legal aid, honestly, to, so to suspected you, terrorists. Exactly. And there's all of these things, although Lynn Stewart, you know, should have gone to prison. Scumbag. 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 <laughs> um, she's not with us anymore, but she should have gone to prison. Uh, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, like these are the things, like the, the, the things you have to be vigilant on and you see people in that hearing. Go and watch it on C-SPAN. I think I was connect, I think I was texting you guys about how pissed off I was about it and see how cavalier these people are with the stuff that in the past they were not so cavalier about. So anyway. Uh, I, I mean, and we've had this conversation so many times before. Um, the question that I would ask um, to perhaps both of you, if if we know that you know votes to certify the election and spec suspicions about fraudulent elections, that there's been a trajectory, and that we've seen this increase across like all of the recent national presidential elections, and we've seen people vote against certifying election results in all of the national recent national elections the circumstances this time around were different the president of the united states like who is being voted out of office actively um challenging the results of the election in this way but there's a trajectory here there's a trend is it more or less concerning when we recognize that trend because I, I look at the fact that, you know, we've, I don't know how many different hearings we've already had about January 6th. And I don't know how many votes there have been um, about, you know, whether or not, you know, we set up a commission. I know that there are parallel investigations taking place in different houses. But we also had like a summer of political violence and uh, what, one to two billion dollars worth of, of damage, according to these uh, insurance insurance. Uh, 
uh, the study that we saw back in like September of last year, uh, which I know Axios had reported on and it being like the most expensive insurance event in the history of the country related to like civil disorder. And this was spread out across not like a couple states, not five, not 10, something like 20 different states in the United States. And we're still seeing like weird disruptions of like order and civil society in different parts of the country that have just persisted for hundreds of days. Like, and we're only interested in like one of those categories. Of I mean, we're not, problem. that's, 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 not, that's I'm, a straw I'm man. Saying, that's a I'm straw saying man. in terms Camille, of the political, the political leadership of this country is only interested in one side of that equation. Well, that I is, think that, that is have, true. And in terms of the instant, to, uh, I'll finish, I'll finish. It, if you, it's, it's an okay, exaggeration, Matt, but I think it, I think it matters when I see like these, these reports about like political extremism that are coming out from the Federal Bureau of Investigation that, that seem to, to be leaning in the direction of focusing on, you know, right wing extremism in a very particular and unique way, as though this is a huge existential threat. And there have been like thousands of deaths across the decade. And it's just, it's just not true. Like that isn't the case. And there is a uniformity of perspective amongst like elite, elite media organs who organs who report on this stuff there is a, a kind of epistemic closure when it comes to how we talk about this, whether or not it's a riot or an insurrection. And I'm, I'm concerned about the degree to which- Or a riot or which, an uprising. It, sure. I'm, just, I'm concerned about the degree to which this is cast in, in one particular way and we don't, again, see it as the broader defect. And we've, just, I, we've had this conversation for a while. People have heard it a bunch of times. So I'm, I don't want to go on- too long. I'm not trying to, I don't think, Matt, to respond to the challenge that you've lobbed, lobbed already, leveled already, that I'm exaggerating when I say there is a, a, a sort of uniform consensus amongst elite media organizations about how to regard this. And, and there is, I, I just, there is I, no, I, think, I don't think there's anyone in the political right who looks at the events of January 6th and says, you know what? Like, it's understandable and not, not just understandable. It's right and good that there was re- this rebellion in terms there, of like the political, there, the political leadership of the Republican party. And there are quite frankly, there's people who, I'm ter- who think it's in fine. terms of the political leadership of the Republican I, party. I don't think that's true. At least not in the same way that it's true that there were people who have like lost their jobs and who've been ostracized for saying, Hey, you know what? Political violence in the service of racial justice that's not acceptable. So I, I just uh, my There's, my just my quibble there. my quibble is with your absolutism of saying that we don't care about X. Well, I, well I, the, I, there's, I, there's, I, there's I refined, plenty. I refined that, and I made okay. it, I tried to make it very clear who I'm talking about when I say we don't care. Okay, but I think that there are people, including in the liberal intelligentsia, which is a phrase we don't use anymore, and we shouldn't probably. Um, who have been saying, you know what, Portland kind of sucks, and we've been looking the other way. Uh, there's a whole like, category to, yeah. of centrism, you know, contrarianism, as, as they're used derisively, or neoliberals, who've been looking at this and saying, there's something messed up and wrong about this. It hasn't gone without notice. And I think that there's also an, a couple of things about the analogy that are important to discern, which is that political violence on its own and you're right, there is a ramp. Um, and the, 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 the actual kind of body count and destruction count is greater 
in the category of post-George Floyd riots? Absolutely. There's not, there's no question about that. Um, I don't know how you would score it on a partisan level before that moment. And I'm not particularly interested in it. Me either, Um, actually. But also, but also, um, it's not a simple question of politicized violence. Um, it, it's a question that makes it a traumatic experience or makes it something that you, one would be concerned about. Um, I don't see a lot of politicians, I'm sure there's some, um, but who are in positions of authority to, after we engage in a democratic uh, counting exercise, uh, will say, we're going to count on the side of Antifa, even though the count is against Antifa. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a, uh, that's violence plus corruption, cowardice, craziness. Um, and in the provision, as I was mentioning before, about those those places that are perceived to be and are supposed to be neutral arbiters, there's so much pressure on them to change, which is why election law is going to be the source of nothing but nonsense and people punching each other in the face forever mm-hmm. because it is the ultimate allegedly neutral arbiter. And there was so much pressure placed, including uh, emails that came out this week that Trump was um, pressuring various people in the Department of Justice in December to try to change the counts in various places. Um, uh, And that's really untoward, undue pressure. And it's greatly, um, it's an escalation um, on orders of magnitude to the already crazy kind of backbencher claims that were made on both sides, uh, beginning really in 2000 with the disputed election, mm-hmm. in 2004 with the people who were upset about Ohio and John Kerry, uh, and, and stretching out um, on both sides, maybe larger on the Democratic side even, up until 2016 or beyond 2016. Uh, but you're adding a, 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 a category that's that's separate or with pure violence. So, um, and another thing to say about the escalation thing, like, like, so, right. Yes. The, the ramp up is really important to look at. And yet there was a ramp up to the Iraq war. Does that make us pause and say that the Iraq war might be maybe more understandable, or maybe we should look at what went on beyond before when we did all these no fly zones here. And when Al Gore said in 19 in 2000, actually that, um, regime change would be part of his administration. We should know all that and talk about mm-hmm. that. And that's important mm-hmm. context. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, the Iraq war was a lot worse than all that shit that went before. And I think what Donald Trump did specifically on January 6th was a lot worse than all that went before. And to acknowledge that isn't to engage in a kind of pylon, an elite media pylon against the rabble um, and to be enabling the deep state to do whatever the fuck. I think it's to call reality reality. But I think that's a thing. We can talk about all of those other things and we should. That's part of the context of where we're at, which is a deep, dark place. Um, but Trump did an extra thing and it's worth calling him out on the extra thing that he did. Well, can, can we extend this beyond? Oh, yeah. I mean, just one final thing. Fucking French goodbying at like a, hour, like seven know, here, Camille. This is, this is the Civil War movie from TBS. The, the, the Gettysburg film. The, you know, there is something conspicuous though, to Camille's point. 
But now it might be it might be materially different, and it obviously is much worse when it's a presidential election and it's a certification of this, and people, you know, with no hope of ever succeeding because they're not going to succeed in stopping democracy changing hands from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party at the White House. But there is something conspicuous about the conversation about that riot, about that insurrection, whatever, and. Not to say that there, it's not even that we're having a conversation, but this one is very, very important. And this one is kind of important, but you know, this one's much more important because it's, it's, it's the presidency. It's actually quite different than that in the sense that people talking about rioting, looting, et cetera, are putting their jobs at risk. You know, I mean, you had that guy, David Shore, who is a pollster, a progressive pollster who was fired for saying that the data might suggest that if you embrace this stuff, it's not good for the Democratic Party. He was fired. And yes, John Chait and people like that, um, you know, wrote about it and addressed it and were pilloried for it. Matt Iglesias left mm-hmm. Vox because he said, I mean, it was one of, I think, many things. But he was attacked for saying, hey, you know, rioting is a pretty bad idea in this situation. And if I were to ever say that amongst, you know, if I were to say like the parent group or something to, to the school, they send these emails and the school emails are always really political. So I would think that I would have a right to be political back. I probably would never be talked to again at, by the people at school for saying that burning down people's buildings, you know, engaging in violence is a bad thing. So there I is mean, you something- saw the, you saw the Robbie Suave piece about the guy in Nashville who, yeah. Oh, the, the was, conductor, right? Yeah. Was the conductor of a choir music, like composer, who all he did was while the, the courthouse in Nashville, a block from his house or whatever, was burning down, saying, go ahead, burn it all down, you fools, uh, you, you know, in, in the name of whatever. And his life has been ruined because of that. Tell me, it was a benign kind of thing. And the, like, I don't think that it's, it's useful to say which one's more important. It is, but it is conspicuous to the average viewer that one type of rioting seems to be worthy of bringing the full force of every element of government for 4,000 investigations in arresting hundreds and hundreds of people, whereas the other one is like, well, you know, I mean, it happens because yeah. people were mad about something, mm-hmm. is that for the average person, and to David Shore, the guy who was fired's point, the average person, this just seems kind of hypocritical. And so just to, to point that out is that, you know, I don't, the scaling thing I, I understand, but, uh, but it does seem kind of, yeah, I, I, and can I, I think it's can totally I, right. Can I just add that, that, that I think that, that it's continuing, right? Like the political violence is one thing, the, the vote, the, the fact that there were votes, you know, during Trump's election certification, um, against certifying and people who were disrupting that process when Joe Biden was doing the certifying, um, and, and, jumping up to make statements uh, about how this was terrible because Russia, 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 like that's one thing. But it's also the case that it continues today that there is this push for a federal voting rights act right now amongst Democrats because of, you know, Jim Eagle, this broad coordinated campaign on the part of Republicans to completely disenfranchise like all black voters and it's just like it's of course i'm being totalizing and ridiculous and and using hyperbole there for effect um but it's just it's just not true like we know that many of these reforms are kind of trivial and some others are unlikely to be particularly consequential and still others are merely rolling things back to where they were before some of the expansion during covid 
Does that mean that we have to, if one is not in favor of new, a new federal statute that gives the federal government greater control over voting rights pushed by Democrats in Congress, that if they're not in favor of that, they're in favor of voter suppression? Like that is a narrative that is being pushed that is largely kind of being ignored by a press that is ostensibly supposed to be somewhat objective in these things. But because of the circumstances, there is a consensus that emerges from the, polit- from the media establishment as it exists. And I think that the issue for me isn't so much that we're merely emphasizing one of these things and as a result, like taking it too seriously or heaping too much scorn on those people. And in some cases, we, we are doing that. But it's more so that we're ignoring the various ways that this kind of escalation of concern is actually happening in different consequ- in different contexts, and it has meaningful consequences. The ramping up of domestic surveillance is a meaningful consequence of that. The the interest even in like I'd say making like giving the IRS like greater capability to do investigations and audits and stuff at a time when there like are these pretty conspicuous leaks of information, like private information that it belongs to taxpayers, even if they're billionaires. And yeah, they and we do don't pay know taxes. From who. And, and we, we don't know from, know from who. Like, ProPublica doesn't know from whom. Like, yeah, hey, we it, got it. We're not sure from who, but like, just, it looks that legit, matters. So. It, it just matters. It, it matters to me that, that we're talking about expanding the powers of the federal bureaucracy in, in particular ways to address particular concerns that in some instances are exaggerated and in other instances actually have like effectively like counterparts on the other like ideological end of the spectrum. And the, those things just aren't getting the same kind of concern um, directed at them. And I just think it, they ought to get more concern directed at can them. I, can That's I make the a, non, a non-friendly goodbye, goodbye yeah. and yeah. just say on the, on the leaked tax returns? It was really, really fun to watch everybody in media <laughs> not understand the so difference cool. between assets and like actual cash in the bank. Yeah, between, it was between like, wealth and income. They had no idea. It was really funny. It's like Jeff Bezos takes an $80,000 salary from, from uh, Amazon. It's like, but he's not paying any taxes on that. It's like, well, he is paying a lot of taxes, but income tax stuff. But it's like, the, the, it's amazing to watch people so fundamentally misunderstand what the actual issue is. And by the way, that's not to say that, like, you know, you can't have a conversation about, you know, sure. taxing somebody's um, assets. And it has to be kind of a high level because, you know, you don't want to tax somebody's uh, Bitcoin that then drops like 40% the next day. And you're like, oh, I have to take out a loan to pay the taxes on the things that I don't actually have the money for. Sounds <laughs> kind of specific there, Michael. I'm just saying. I just want to make sure that this doesn't affect me. Um, and you know, sometimes I lose money, but I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. Neo is coming back. Um, but you know, it, 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 was, it was just such a great joy to watch on television. Like, you know, he's got all this income and he's not, but it's like, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. But nobody intervenes because the narrative's too good. Yeah. But 20, 20 seconds uh, addendum tying those together is just that um, the law enforcement and political bureaucracies will look at 
the worst possible bad guy as mm. their like poster child for getting powers that they will immediately use Absolutely. on the lowest level drug dealer Absolutely. you've ever heard. Yes. Post 9-11, all that stuff went after low-level drug dealers. Dude. Absolutely. That's, that's where it went. And the same will be true if Elizabeth Warren gets her way, Joe Biden, Janet Yellen get their way on creating a, quote, comprehensive new financial reporting system, unquote, uh, which they unveiled last month uh, to uh, magically find, you know, uh, $500 extra billion dollars a year. It won't cost penny. It won't cost anything. It's crazy. It's crazy. And the people who get caught up in it will be the people who cannot afford compliance yeah um which is you motherfucker i'm really sorry yeah, i don't want to have that. to take out loans to pay to pay taxes on shit that i don't actually have <laughs> i mean if it's bill gates like all right he's fine but me not so fine so I, you know i i we i mentioned this via our text thread and i you know rising um it was uh, crystal and sager uh, i guess are the hosts of rising right yes um and i i don't i know sager a little bit don't know crystal although we've probably done television together at some point in the past um they recently launched their own thing breaking points which is kind of this this interesting enclave of left right populist outrage um and occasionally some some interesting smart commentary as well some interviews you might not find in other places about ufos for example but they were freaking out about this pro publica thing and were just just beside themselves with outrage and kept uh, i saw crystal like referring to the the loans that these rich people were taking out against their against their equity That's holdings in these companies <laughs> yeah. and it's like well what do you think happens there they do have to pay interest on those loans. Those loans do, in fact, get paid out. And at some point when they sell their shares, yes, they pay taxes. Should we do some sort of reform? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. But they do pay a lot of taxes. In fact, they pay the lion's share of the total tax revenues that are collected. They, they come from the top, what, 1%, 5%? Like it's, this is a thing that happens. Um, so it's not it's not nearly as outrageous as it's presented, and ProPublica's true tax rate is a complete farce. I mean, it just like laughably stupid. But, laughably but stupid. I mean, it is hilarious that when oh. I didn't see that thing um, where they were talking about the loan thing, but that is that is literally how it's worked for like a very long time. Yeah, like in twenty years or more, I would say. Um, sure. If you want to go back to the Newt Gingrich stuff, but yeah, it's it is it is you know what you do you borrow against your assets. And yeah, you why you're not paying taxes on money that right. you're borrowing against your assets, but the, you the ultimately have to pay that off. And sometimes yeah. you take more loans to pay that off, and you just roll those loans over, right? So you get a lower tax rate. But you know, I mean, it's not as if they're paying nothing because capital gains is what twenty one, twenty two something percent, and you know, it's better than taking it as an income tax and just cashing out. Right. But imagine, imagine how crazy that would be if you just. You're just cashing out your shares all the time to make right. it's like that's just not how it works. Imagine imagine a circumstance where you're forcing executives, like top executives at major companies, to to sell off all their stock at the end of the year. So that no they can pay their stock so they can be, pay their the bills. So they could pay Maybe their bills. You should get out of this if Jeff Bezos is selling <laughs> so everything. Weird. Exactly. Exactly. Where, what is their interest in making certain the company keeps doing better? Keeping their eighty thousand dollar a year salary? Come yeah. on, man. Come, Come on, man. man. Anyway. Come on. Come on. <laughs> he's 82. He's got 82. At, at some point, one, we'll get Crystal Sager over here. Maybe we should job. do that. And we could talk about this, <laughs> among other things. Anyways, let's get the All hell right. out of here. Let's get out let's of here. We'll see you soon. Oh, okay. we, got some, we got some big shit coming in the future. Is that, is that wow. yeah, yeah, I've yeah, been yeah, working on a thing. 
We're working you know on a thing. You know about the There's thing. like some severe investigative journalistic yeah, craziness. Yeah, I mean, oh, dude, dude, people, you have no idea. Cracker so Jack. You, you might be thinking that we've been slacking, dude. Oh, my God. Dude. <sighs> He's not. Moynihan and I have been. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Moynihan have been slacking. Camille's got a fucking fedora on with it says press on it, and he's like, "Hey, can old. I tell you what? Answer these questions. See? No, we've been doing some. We've been doing some heavy lifting over here. So we'll Good see. You may you may hate it, but you'll find out very very soon. Uh, on. No one's gonna hate it. This is this is too much interesting stuff. They'll only right. hate it if you fuck it up, Camille. So don't fuck it up. <laughs> don't fuck it up. <laughs> All right. All right. Bye. 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 We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse, the fifth column.